That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. First and goal. Mahomes flings it. It's there! Hartman! Jackpot! Kansas City! And this was the Andy Reid special. This was the Andy Reid special. We talked about he was saving all day. He's going to fake a motion to go across. And at that moment, he turns and goes back. Hartman, who they didn't have, right? And they go get Hartman and bring him back. And the game-winning drive of Mahomes' career, he's been waiting for. He's won Super Bowls, but he's never had it in an overtime. He is the best. He is the standard. Your Michael Jordan wins it again. Yeah, very much uh, like the season. Defense played great all the way through. Kept us in the game. And then these guys just took over, kind of wore it down and ended up taking over. So it was great. No, there's nothing different to say. I mean, I don't care how you lose when you lose Super Bowls, especially ones you think you can pull off. Um, it hurts. But, um, I mean, I think, I don't know, when, you, when you're when you in the NFL, I think every team should hurt except for one at the end. Um, we've gotten pretty damn close, but uh, we haven't pulled it off. And we're hurting right now, but doesn't take away from how proud of our guys I am. Um, I'm real proud of them today, too. Um, that's part of sports. It's part of football. It's part of life. But um, glad we put ourselves out there, and I love our team, and we'll recover, and we'll be back, we'll be back next year strong. Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes. You could feel it down the stretch, couldn't you, fourth quarter, certainly into the overtime, that the game was – slipping into the hands of Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs walked off champions in the Super Bowl 25-22 Chiefs win it I want your reaction I want you to tell me what you think the most pivotal most important biggest factor in Kansas City's victory was did the Chiefs win the game did the 49ers lose the game did both things happen 503-417-7575 what is the biggest takeaway, the lasting image or thought you had in the Super Bowl? I have one. Maybe it's not the same as you. I do see the interaction between Travis Kelsey and Andy Reid on the sideline in the first half, getting some run on social media. I see a lot of people declaring Patrick Mahomes as greater than Tom Brady after winning a back-to-back Super Bowl in the third in five years. I see a lot of people wondering why Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers did not know the rules in the Super Bowl overtime. Why did they take the ball? Uh, Was their biggest mistake in the overtime just not simply knowing the rules? What was the most pivotal play that uh, unfolded for you? 503-417-7575. I guess I'm asking you to unpack the 
the the magic question from the Super Bowl yesterday. Great game in that it was dramatic, but not a great and well-played game in a lot of ways. But you tell me, what was the biggest factor? What was the tipping point? What was pivotal? What, uh, as you walk into work today or as you wake up this morning, is your first thought? I'll tell you this. The first thing I thought about this morning was not Kyle Shanahan, apparently not aware of the Super Bowl overtime rules, why he would put the ball in his own quarterback's hands and not Patrick Mahomes' hands to start the overtime period is is a little puzzling. You're both going to get possessions. You at least would know what you need to match or beat uh, if you're the 49ers. The Chiefs seem to have thought that through more than Kyle Shanahan's team. But that wasn't my first thought. My first thought was about the stage, how big the stage felt, and how there were some moments in the game, particularly for the 49ers, was a back-breaking moment when they have a punt return uh, turn into a turnover and the Chiefs capitalize in the red zone, turn it into seven points. It was those kinds of mistakes, those kinds of errors, and that big stage that left me thinking a lot about the value and the importance and, frankly, uh, the advantage that the Kansas City Chiefs had in having been there before, there being Super Bowl more recently, having more players who had been there, being in that moment, and, of course, the great difference maker that is Patrick Mahomes. I just kept saying throughout the game, and I'm watching this game a little differently because I grew up a Niner fan, I'm watching this game more as a fan, and I kept saying, don't get in this kind of game. You don't want to get in a back-and-forth, our field goal against your field goal situation against Patrick Mahomes. And I reached out to Dan Lanning, the Oregon football coach, after the game. He's a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan. And I sent him a text uh, because he was at the game saying, congrats, your team won. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, awesome. Uh, 49ers made too many mistakes. Uh, Yada, yada, yada. And Dan Lanning came back with that at the end. It was Pat being Pat. And there's so much truth in that, that, you know, the NFL is a one-score league. About 50% of the games this season, in the regular season, were one-score outcomes, seven points or less, in fifty more than 50% of the games this year. And in the Super Bowl, you've got two really good teams, you've got a big stage, people playing a little bit tight, and ultimately I think the Kansas City Chiefs just made a couple more plays and had Patrick Mahomes. I want your reaction, though, to the game. 503-417-7575. What did you see? What was the big difference? I want your take. Let's go to Mark in Portland. He's going to lead us off. Mark, what would you see? Hey, I, I saw what I saw kind of a, a, the Baltimore game with Say Flowers at the goal line there. It was a, a horribly bad luck, but also a mental error, and that was the, the punt guy. If you're not going to catch the punt, then get the hell out of the way of the ball. That was really uh, what turned the game. It wasn't just that turnover. You could just see the momentum had switched. That San Francisco came out, and they were – they were winning the line of scrimmage in the first half, and they were controlling the game. And that, that play, uh, just like that, that whole momentum was all erased and one bad play. And But I want to kind of give you San Francisco guys something that I'm seeing all people talking about Mahomes being the greatest. Joe Montana in four games, Super Bowls, was had 11 touchdowns with no interceptions. Mahomes has seven passing touchdowns with five interceptions. Joe was perfect. So that hasn't That'll never be matched for four games, to be quite honest. Uh, you can argue that angle, and I would still say he's he's certainly not better than Brady yet. So um, it was 
I think it was more San Francisco, John, for me. I mean, you don't ever see McCaffrey fumble, and he had a fumble there on the first drive that could have – San Francisco should have been, you know, up by two or three scores based on what was happening at the line of scrimmage in the first half. And they just – they never were able to, you know, take that that double-digit lead. And it seemed like they, they got a little complacent. You know what I mean? Yeah. They weren't attacking. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know what I'm – yeah, Montana would have been throwing to Rice, uh, trying to uh, blow the game open, and um, that's you know they. It was it was hard to watch because I thought San Francisco was the better team, but you yeah. know Mahomes is the best player in the league, and you give him a chance like that, he's not going to lose too many of those. Yeah, and I said that after the game. You know, we we had had some people over watching the game. And I was cleaning up, and I was like, gosh, I felt like San Francisco was the better team. I thought they were just a little better, aside from Patrick Mahomes. But I think Mark's right. You know, at halftime, the Niners are looking at, you know, an advantage in the game, but they had dominated the line of scrimmage. And the third quarter belonged to the Chiefs. And then all of a sudden, this game got tight, and you get into a one-score game in the NFL with a player like Patrick Mahomes – you better have somebody that can match that, and uh, and uh, that's what I thought. Brock Purdy was was okay, but not spectacular. And the Niners receivers, George Kittle in particular, Debo Samuel, struggling to get separation with uh, some of the Kansas City defensive backs. Bruce is in Portland. Bruce, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John. Thanks. Yeah, I thought Purdy played pretty well considering the stage and how young he is. But I think the pivotal point was when Greenlaw, the guy, the DB who pushed off from the sideline and tore his Achilles. Yeah, I mean, that guy had shut down Travis Kelsey up to that point. He was a cog in the DB in the defensive backfield for the Niners, and that completely changed, you know, Mahomes' attacking method and Kelsey and everybody else, you know. Um, and then I think the fact that uh, in the OT that San Francisco got away from the run game. I mean, they ran, ran, ran all the way down to the four-yard line, and then they stopped giving it to McCaffrey, and they tried to throw, you know, the pass in, and that's when – Kansas City stepped up the blitzes, and, you know, they just uh, out-coached them, I believe. Um, and Shanahan, those guys all know that rule. You know, you all get an equal chance. The rule I didn't know is if time expires in the first OT, it used to be a tie, but obviously you can't have a tie in, in a championship game or any kind of playoff game, so it goes into a whole other quarter. Um, but, uh, yeah, you give Mahomes a chance like that, and it's game over. But San Francisco dominated that first half, but when Greenlaw went down, change the complexity of things you know and Samuels was hurt and then Kittle went out with a shoulder injury and just kind of threw off a lot of things I think on Sam in the second half for, for the Niners but you know credit to, to the Chiefs for uh, hanging in there and and pulling it out um, it was a great game I thought it was a great finish so, yeah I thought anyway. I thought the best two players in the game were I thought Nick Bosa played a great game despite not having like a plethora of sacks he was very disruptive and I felt like he got held multiple times, but you know, I think. And then the 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 best player for Kansas City was obviously Patrick Mahomes, and I think it was just evidence of like the NFL and the league that the NFL is. If you've got a playmaker like that who can close and can finish, uh, you got a real chance to make a difference. Let's go to Daryl, who's in Myrtle Creek. Daryl, welcome to the conversation. Thanks, John. Uh, on that muff punt, I mean that was a momentum changer, I believe, but it wasn't muff. It hit number 28 on the foot, and number three had to try and recover it. So yes. I don't blame him for that. that no, I, don't, up. I don't either, but I think that was a really pivotal play. I mean, you got to get away from that yep. ball if you are not the, the punt returner on that, on that play. 
Exactly. But number 28 didn't know it was going to come down and hit him in the ankle, obviously. And like I say, number three had to try and recover it because it did hit his teammate. Yeah, I, I got you on that. And I think, but it was such a pivotal play. I mean, Stephen, you tell me, play of the game? I think so, yeah. Uh, it was one of those things where the 49ers had all the momentum. It was 10-6 to 6 in the late in the third quarter, and the Chiefs were doing absolutely nothing, John, on the offensive side of the ball. And then all of a sudden, they, you know, Kansas City gets the ball about you know inside the 20-yard line, one play later, touchdown. Chiefs take the lead, you know, heading into the fourth quarter, and you're thinking, oh, man, like the 49ers had so many chances to extend the game to two scores, and it's just like you said, you can't let Patrick Mahomes stay in the game. And this was the time to get him because the Chiefs' offense wasn't great the entire postseason. They had stretches against the Ravens where they couldn't score. They had stretches in the Super Bowl where they couldn't score the first three quarters. And then you give them a touchdown right at the end of the third quarter, and it just seemed like, man, that is a killer right there. And it got him back in the game. And then when the 49ers go down and they score a touchdown in the fourth, the missed extra point. I think that was the other biggest play mm. of the game. Like, you can't have these type of – and. And I'm okay with physical mistakes, but these are mental mistakes, I think. Like, I feel like, yeah, it hit the guy in the foot. He didn't know it was going to hit him in the foot. You got to be aware of that. If you're the kicker, you can't. This is a mental mistake to be in your head and kick it low and not get it up and over the over the defensive line, even as Jay Feely said. It wasn't a good pressure by the Chiefs. It was just a bad kick. And so I just, man, the, a couple of mistakes like that, and then you give it to Patrick Mahomes, he's going to take advantage, and he's going to win the game. And it's just, if you're a 49er fan, man, it, it's got to be a killer because – I'm with you. I think the Chiefs or the 49ers were the better team, but Patrick Mahomes was just the best player. And then you gave him opportunities. He's going to take advantage every single time. You got to give him credit. Uh, you know, he walks off with the trophy, but in the end, the uh, 49ers, I think, felt a little sick watching it. Uh, you know, bigger, big discussion after the game that surprised me a little bit was the criticism of Tony Romo and Jim Nance, specifically Tony Romo, kind of blathering at the end of what was a uh, remarkable and very dramatic finish to the Super Bowl. I want to play this, and I want you to tell me as you listen to this, does it bother you? Do you, uh, you know, to keep in mind, Tony Romo was getting paid $18 million bucks for this call. And here's Nance and Romo at the end of the game. Just so everyone knows, it's because it's just the first quarter in overtime. That's how you have to think of it, okay? The reason they're not taking or not, because we don't just say at zero, we end the game. It's the end of the first quarter, and you move to the second quarter. That's right, because I can only feel the number of people out there being like, what's going on? First and goal. Mahomes flings it. It's there! Hartman! Jackpot! Kansas City! And this was the Andy Reid special. This was the Andy Reid special. We talked about he was saving all day. He's going to fake a motion to go across. And at that moment, he turns and goes back Hardman, who they didn't have, right? And they go get Hardman and bring him back. And the game-winning drive of Mahomes' career, he's been waiting for. He's won Super Bowls, but he's never had it in an overtime. He is the best. He is the standard. Your Michael Jordan wins it again. All right. That, at the end, as I listen to it, you know, I'm cringing a little bit. Now, in the moment when I'm watching it, I'm not really listening to Tony Romo because uh, this was a rare Super Bowl that I got to enjoy as a fan. I stayed off Twitter. I didn't tweet anything during the game. I just kind of watched the game. And uh, as I listen back to Romo making that call, uh, you know, I'm reminded that, like, you know, like a lot of players in this game, 
the stage, you know, and I said this at halftime, Usher's on the stage. I kind of felt Usher was underwhelming. And I saw a lot of people who loved it later and told me later, hey, I loved it. It was great. You know, I, I guess it depends if you're an Usher fan. But I sometimes feel like the stage for players is it, the stage is too big for the play. It, you know, it's an old saying in theater. And so you sometimes get players who are a little wide-eyed in a big game and don't quite play the same or don't make the plays. And I think by the same, you know, token and by the same, uh, you know, framing it the same way, Tony Romo is in a big moment at the end of the game here. And Jim Nance, I thought, did a good job. But I've had a problem all year long kind of watching these two guys kind of fight over the microphone or step on each other. And Tony Romo just stepped all over that moment. It, it, I think it was a bad finish for Romo. And he's getting, I think, some well-deserved criticism. I want to know, did it bother you as a viewer? 503-417-7575. And Romo, I normally love the guy. I like his analysis. I like when he's calling out a play and saying, watch this, watch the middle. It, you know, but I feel like he's gravitated away from that a little bit. And certainly in the in the end of this game, what is he talking about, Stephen? Uh, you know, oh, there's an Andy Reid special, whatever. No, be in the moment and and let you know let this moment breathe a little bit instead of just stepping all over it. Yeah, I mean, I'm no uh, analyst or play by play expert, but it seemed like he said a lot of words that didn't need to be put in there. You know, it could have been just the, that's an Andy Reid special, and then basically like that's it. Like he kept talking and talking and talking to prove his point, talking about McCole Hardman not on the team. Like just let it breathe a little bit, let the fans cheer, like hear it, and I think. <laughs> Yeah, listen, like, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, just like you listen to the the really good announcers and, and they know when when the play needs to just let it breathe and they need to let it sit, let the fans roar. And Romo just didn't do that. Now, it doesn't bother me. Like, I'm not a big announcer guy, but I thought Romo didn't have the best of games. And even my wife was saying, like, she's not a 49er or a Chief fan. She goes, man, he just he seems like he's rooting for the Chiefs. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it seemed like, like he was always over Patrick Mahomes. Everything he did is the best thing of all time. So. I don't know, it just seemed like it wasn't the best game from Romo, but that's kind of what he is now. He he wants to hear himself talk, and he wants to make things about himself. So it is kind of a weird dynamic between him and Nance now. I think it would be really interesting to kind of hear that same clip, that same moment, with no Tony Romo interference in it. Just Nance kind of calling it as he saw it. All right, so I'm going to replay it just as uh, it might have sounded if Tony Romo had stepped out of the broadcast booth and uh, had to go use the facilities or something, or uh, you know, if he had gone hoarse and couldn't talk anymore in the last few seconds. Tell me if this is a better call. Backpack, Kansas City! All right, so there, let me get it from the top. Here you go. First and goal. Mahomes swings it. It's there! Hartman, jackpot, Kansas City! No Tony Romo interference, better. <laughs> much, better. much better, much better, yeah. It's just better. Uh, for the, Andy Reid, the special, you know, it was almost like he hadn't, like he didn't know, uh, you know, that the game was over. The season was over. Just let it breathe a little bit. Come in with some analysis. Say something simple. And, and I normally, like, I don't even, I don't even, like one time I had a conversation with Bill Shonley about his call. 
of the 1977 championship game where, you know, he basically says the shot is up, it's missed, it's no good, rebound, and he says the game is over. And uh, and I thought, and I said to Sean's like, couldn't you have come up with something that was more profound? Like, you know, uh, you know, sweetness in Rose City. You know, I don't know. Come up with something that you had thought about over the course of the season. And he said he just reacted in the moment. And he just simply said the game was over. And it was almost, I think, disbelief by Sean's that it was over. And the Blazers, who had been down in the series, actually won it. If a broadcaster knows, like, in that moment, they're not maybe not going to have top of mind or the awareness, and Romo's certainly one of those guys, he should have had something, you know, prepared or either thought he might say during a commercial break earlier or talk to his production team, talk to his producer in his ear on a commercial break. Go, hey, you know, what are you thinking at the end of the game here? This is a big moment for Patrick Mahomes. Or somebody's got to be able to get in his ear and say, hey, Tony, it's okay to let the moment breathe. Let Jim call it. Well, you know, Nance had the jackpot Kansas City. Like, that was holstered. He had that ready to go. It wasn't as if he'd thought of that on the spot. Like, that was definitely something that he thought go into the game. Yeah, that's a great way to end the game if it ends on a game-winning play like that. So, Nance, like, again, Nance is a pro. He's ready, man. He's a veteran. He had that in, in, under in the holster. I'm with you. Romo just kind of freaked out and didn't know what to do. Just started talking and mumbling the whole time. Let's go to Cub, who's in Beaverton. Cub, welcome to that conversation. All right, so it, with all the modern technology, I tried to stream the radio because I knew Nance and Romo were doing the game. I can't even handle the game on CBS. So there should be, in the new technology of our world, there should be a Romo mute button. That's all I got. <laughs> I, I love that. Like people at home, what you should be able to do is you should be able to, like, you know, sometimes you can tune into the college football playoff national championship game. You can get, like, the Alabama feed. Or you can get like the Michigan feed. You know, you should be able to tune in and go. You know, I want the Romo feed, or I want the feed that doesn't have Romo giving analysis. Now, I normally like the guy, Stephen. You and I have talked about this. Like, I normally enjoy the feeling of Romo in the regular season, sitting on the sofa beside me, telling me, "Hey, watch the tight end here. It's gonna be open. They're bringing two. He adds some of that expertise that I like. But maybe, just like some players, maybe he's a regular season broadcaster and not a Super Bowl guy. It's the, yeah, I mean, he, he, was, he was like that when he was a player. I mean, think about when he uh, dropped the the the, uh, the field goal attempt in, in Seattle. He fumbled the snap, and he had to run it in, and, try to, and he didn't get it. So, I mean, maybe he is. Maybe he's just not a postseason performer. But you're right, because during, even during the game, there was times when Brock Purdy called a timeout, and he's like, no, you got you got the, you got the coverage you want. Just hold on to it. Wait you know, five seconds left in the play clock. And he explained it perfectly of how, no, like Purdy, if he just ran the play, he had what yes. he wanted. And yep. then it's just like the touchdown call just isn't his thing. Like he's great in the game because he can read it. You know, he's a great, he was a good quarterback. He can read the defense. He can explain it well. But just when it's an actual finished play, that's when he struggles. And I just, it was the worst timing to do it on the game winning Super Bowl play. Just let Nance have that one. And Nance is going to do a good job with that. Andy Reid and Travis Kelsey had a moment on the sideline in the first half. Tensions were running high. Kelsey uh, came over, shouted at Andy Reid, bumped the coach uh, after Kansas City had turned the ball over in the red zone. After the game, they laughed it off. But I want to know what you made of it as a fan watching the game. Do you have a reaction to what happened? Was it way out of line? Is it overblown? 503-417-7575. You tell me. 
I didn't think the production of the whole halftime show was that good. And aside from like um, J-Lo and uh, the Dunkin' Donuts commercials, a little bit underwhelmed there. I don't know. Maybe it's me. I'm not there for the uh, halftime show and the commercials, but I had thoughts about it. I want to know what you thought about Andy Reid and Travis Kelsey. Uh, I don't want to say mixing it up, but Andy Reid later said that he thought um, Travis Kelsey was just coming over to say, put me in, I'll score. But that's not what it looked like, and it certainly got a lot of attention on the broadcast and on social media after, of course, Travis Kelsey said, I've got the greatest coach this game has ever had, and it's all good and all that stuff. They kind of laughed it off, but I, um, I thought, his approach to Reed was way out of line and it made him look like he was more concerned with his own performance in the game than the team's performance time and place. But Travis Kelsey's done this stuff on the sideline, especially this season. It seems like that offense is just not clicking like it was in other years. He threw his helmet at a game earlier. He threw his helmet on the game during the Super Bowl. Um, but a lot made of it or no? Big deal or not? 503-417-7575. Steven, big deal or not? I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think it would be a much bigger deal had they lost the game. But since they won the game, I don't think it's as big a deal as it would have been with a loss. I, I think this happens in football. And even later on in the game, Rasheed Rice, uh, at the end of regulation, he got yeah. into Patrick Mahomes' face because he was open. He thought he was open, and Mahomes looked at Kelsey and threw it to him when he was covered really well. I, I just think this stuff happens, and especially at that position, you know, when you're a when you're a skill position guy, and Travis Kelsey, you know, he is a tight end, but he's a skill position guy. Like he's a Hall of Famer. He's maybe the best ever to do it from the tight end position. He's gonna want the ball every single time, and in that game, and we saw what he did, John, when he caught that ball. I believe it was in the fourth quarter. He ran over 19.7 or 19.7 miles per hour, the fastest he ran in like seven years. I mean, he was cooking. He was feeling himself in that game. So I think he was feeling good. He just wanted to get the ball and thought he should have been getting the ball more on. Now, he shouldn't have got in Andy Reid's face, and he shouldn't have bumped him for sure. I think it was a little bit of overreaction for Travis Kelsey, but that stuff I feel like happens a lot more on the football field and on the sidelines, than we and we just don't see it because we're just watching the game. But in the Super Bowl, everything's magnified. So I, I really don't think it's that big of a deal. I think that they know, like, it's all about the winning for those two. And, uh, you know, I think Andy Reid and Travis Kelsey probably will get over it pretty quickly uh, since they won that game. I agree that if they had lost the game, it would have it would have got a lot more run. I also think, though, that Travis has got to know that he's on he's under the spotlight in a way that he has never been before. And and in you know, I'm I don't make a bunch out of the Kelsey Taylor Swift relationship. But I got to admit, when I saw him go to the sideline and bump his 65-year-old coach and scream at him, I thought to myself, gosh, is this a guy who is now concerned more with his own statistics and his own brand and his own, uh, his own ability to you know, make a catch in the, in the red zone and score a touchdown in the Super Bowl than he is with the mission of the team? And I, I had not thought that about Travis Kelsey. I'm not one of these people that doesn't like Travis and Jason Kelsey because they're everywhere. You're you're that guy, right? Steven, you don't, you don't like yeah. these guys. No, yeah. I don't I don't like those guys. No. I'm not there yet. I'm not at the exhaustion point yet. But I thought this was a really bad look for Travis Kelsey and it's a look that will make me it kind of goes in his file. You know what I mean? I'm not I'm not indicting him. I'm not ready to wash my hands of him, but 
this goes in his file. Like this one is it's it's in his uh it's in the file cabinet under, you know, what's wrong with Travis Kelsey if this becomes a thing next season or beyond or whatever. Uh Andy Reid after the game uh was asked kind of about his plans moving forward. And if you are a big Kansas City Chiefs fan, you probably want to see this thing uh, you know, continue. Uh and uh Andy Reid was asked in the post game about his future. I honestly haven't even thought about it, but I get asked it. I mean, I'm still kind of in awe of the, the game and, and what went on there. So um, I really haven't thought why or what or anything else, but people keep asking me. And I, I keep saying, why did Belichick and Pete retire? You know, those guys, they ask those old guys a question. But I'm, I'm the old guy now, <clears throat> so I guess I'm going to be asked that. I really haven't gone there. I haven't really thought about it. Yeah, I know why people are asking, and and Andy Reid's got to know why people are asking. When you hit sixty five or so, people kind of look at you and they expect you to be like, "Do you have the, do you have uh, you know the desire to go on?" And I think as long as he has Patrick Mahomes, I think he's got to at least strongly consider sticking around because he's got a chance to win every year. Like this would not be the the year for Andy Reid to go. I've had enough. Let somebody else come in and run this thing. No, like, I think you kind of got to ride this out if you're Andy Reid, don't you? I think so, too, because, and I've said this numerous times, I still can't believe the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Like, I picked against them the last three weeks, against the Bills, the Ravens, and the 49ers. I don't know that the Chiefs' offense is really that great, but Patrick Mahomes is so good, he just gets by with it. And the Chiefs somehow make a play, you know, a team makes a mistake, and they capitalize. So I think if it was, if you're going to get the Chiefs, it might have been this season because that offense was not very good. And now they got young guys like Rasheed Rice. They're going to bring in other guys. You know that they're going to, Mahomes is going to say, hey, I need someone that can catch the football on the outside, <laughs> like in the offseason. And so they're going to bring in some other guys. Travis Kelsey, he still has it when he needs it if he comes back. Like, He's gonna stay healthy. You know, he's gonna be get healthy for the for the postseason. I would imagine the regular season won't be great for Kelsey, but he'll be ready and healthy in the postseason. I'm with you. Like, there's no reason not to run it back if you're Andy Reid and you want to build on your legacy of what you've got because this team is always gonna be really good. That defense is young, really good, and then you got Mahomes, who may be the best of all time. So, no, I'm with you, man. It's if I'm Reid, but why would I leave? It's, it's you're guaranteed to make the playoffs and probably get some home games in the postseason as well. It's really hard to win in the NFL, and it's hard to stay at the top of the NFL when you've had success. Why? Because you've got to pay guys. And so I think one of the things that the Chiefs did that's impressive in, in the last couple of years is they have transitioned from being a high-octane offensive team into being Patrick Mahomes finding a way on offense in a really good defensive team. And, you know, Tyreek Hill not part of the equation. Offensively, they've lost some punch. But what do they do? They go in the draft. They trade up. Um, they take McDuffie in the draft. They move up to get him because they know that their their focus is going to be on the defensive side of the ball. And you got and you got the impression late in the game that like the defense was able to do some things because it knows it has Patrick Mahomes over on the other side that will you know they'll be, he'll bail us out. He'll find a way to get three if we can hold him to three here. And so the defense m- very much plays this game that is in synergy with the offensive side of the ball, and it's really a fun thing to watch because you can see that, like, this is not a team that is dominant. Like, as a team, it has opportunistic moments on offense, and it just kind of tries to find a way and put the ball in the hands of Patrick Mahomes and then plays really good defense. And I thought, you know, as for as much as the Niners controlled the line of scrimmage, 
it was a big, big red flag for me in watching the game that they did not have a double-digit convincing lead at halftime. And the longer you let Patrick Mahomes hang around, the more you're just playing right into the hands of the Chiefs in the way that they want to do things. But uh, I, you know, as much as we're criticizing Tony Romo for the call, I want to give the call that was on Westwood One and the call that was on Nickelodeon, which had the uh, slime cast of the Super Bowl. Here is Westwood One Radio, final call of the game. First and goal at the three. Lining up in the clock at 10 seconds and ticking. In the shotgun, Mahomes. Four-man front, receiver in motion, low snap. He runs and he throws, caught, touchdown! It's caught! Hardman caught the ball! The Chiefs have won! The Chiefs have won! The entire bench empties! Chasing Mahomes in the end zone. Their third Super Bowl in five years. The Chiefs are back-to-back Super Bowl champions. It is a dynasty. The Chiefs have won Super Bowl 58. 25-22 in overtime. There's your call by Kevin Harlan on Westwood One. Really uh, solid, succinct. Um, maybe could have let the moment breathe a little more if we're going to nitpick him, but um, he kept it simple. Here's the call on Nickelodeon. Uh, Noah Eagle on the call. He is going to find a lane and take it in himself. Let's see what it. happens here. They called it. I need eight seconds left in overtime. No. Mahomes roll. Mahomes touchdown. Kansas City wins back-to-back Super Bowls. It's Nicole Hardman. Wow. Mahomes magic makes its way to Bikini Bottom, and the Chiefs have done it once again. <laughs> Makes its way to Bikini Bottom. Uh, that that was a better call than CBS had. <laughs> so if you were uh, on it, you were on it. Uh, there it is. We got our big splash coming up. It doesn't have anything to do with the Super Bowl. Plus, in the 4 o'clock hour, we'll play Punch It Audio, and we will talk with uh, Mark Gonzalez of Baseball America. He has the lowdown on the Pac-12's final season, is it, as a baseball entity. Later in the program, Reagan Beers, Oregon State's uh, woman in the middle. She is the Pac-12 Player of the Week, second time this season she's got it. Uh, She is such a good story. She'll join us in the 5 o'clock hour as the Oregon State women's team skyrocketing up the rankings this week. Rankings came out today. They're up to a number 11 in the AP Top 25. The Beavers are 20-3. and All that still ahead. Well, we usually do our big splash in this segment. I'll tell you what's not going to make the big splash. Apparently, the relationship between Larsa Pippen and uh, Marcus Jordan is over, Stephen. Did you know this? Uh, I did not know that. <laughs> I knew they were together. Did not know the breakup happened. That is, uh, that's unfortunate. You know, you want to see those two kids, you know, fall in love and stay in love. Well, apparently, uh, this happened in the wake of the Super Bowl. People magazine noting that uh, she has removed him from uh, all the Instagram posts and he has unfollowed her and that's the way breakups go. 
in today's world. Did you buy that as a real relationship, uh, you know, Pip and Jordan reunion? No. no I, <laughs> Marcus Jordan's not the first, you know, notable name that she's she's dated besides Scottie Pippen. I mean, she was in a relationship with uh, Malik Beasley as well, NBA player. Yeah. Like, there's there's numerous guys that she's been involved with. So I didn't really buy it as a real thing. I just remember when they were in Portland, she would walk into uh, what was then the Rose Garden Arena. She would always arrive late. She'd come walking in. She'd be wearing like a big fur coat, and I was like, "She's in Portland. Does not she does not know she's in Portland? This isn't the heyday of the Bulls." But uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, like I believe in the uh, Kelsey and Swift uh, relationship. I did not see Jordan and Pippen, Marcus and Larsa, as a thing. <laughs> so apparently, it's over. And uh, he says that he has been informed they're no longer in a relationship. So there's that. Um, that's not going to make our big splash. Also not in our big splash. How about this one? Uh, UCLA, Coach Chip Kelly moving to Ohio State. I uh, messaged with Chip over the weekend. And I you know, sort of congratulated him on getting to uh, a job that is probably feels more enjoyable finding some career happiness, maybe giving up some salary at UCLA, giving up that head coaching position. People at, at UCLA are, are not happy with Chip for leaving to take the offensive coordinator job at Ohio State. But I said, you're going to be happy. you get back to coaching. Chip's response to me was, you get it, and happy is right. <laughs> so uh, I think we could put it to rest what this is really about for Chip Kelly. I don't think he liked working for his athletic director at UCLA. I don't think he likes the transfer portal and NIL. Never really into it. And there's some UCLA fans that are happy that Chip is gone, but I think he's going to be happier at, at Ohio State. How does he do as a play caller? Is this a big gain for Ohio State? I think it is. I think I think it can be. I'm not, I'm not sold yet 100% because it's not as if the UCLA offenses were excellent, especially this last season. I know they had some quarterback issues, but... They were mostly led by their defense, and, you know, the DTR days, like, they were fine. They were a fine offense, but we've never seen Chip with this type of talent, so I, I do think Chip is a good coach. I want to see it be done, though, because I'm not ready yet to uh, to say Ohio State is going to be back because they weren't very good in offense this last season. So I think he actually has a tougher road than people are thinking, uh, but I think overall it was a good hire, and I would take the risk on Chip as well. Also not in the big splash, or not getting the big splash today, Washington State with a sweep over the Oregon schools, Oregon State and Oregon, last Thursday and Saturday over the weekend. Kyle Smith, Washington State coach, uh, has got it going. They are not ranked in the AP Top 25. They would uh, register as also receiving votes, probably by virtue of the fact that they played a soft off conference schedule. But I talked to Jerry Palm, CBS Sports Bracketology expert, this morning. Asked him, where is he in the bracket? Where's Washington State in the bracket? He's got him as a seven seed. He said they are firmly in the middle of the bracket. That meshes with the AP Top 25. They have four quad one wins, um, and three of those four wins are on the road. They're playing really well. Here's Kyle Smith talking about his uh, victory over Oregon. It wasn't pretty, but uh, got it. You know what? I, I feel the same way about an ugly win as, as bad pizza. They don't exist. There's not, I love pizza and I love winning, so we don't care. Uh, and um, you know, it's it is what it is. I, it, we, it was a pretty game last time we played. It was 89-84 or something, and uh, we were able to score, and they were doing whatever they wanted. So this time it was just kind of the opposite. And- 
Kyle Smith getting a win uh, over Oregon, 62-56 on Saturday. You as an Italian, is there such thing as bad pizza, though? There is. There, there, I mean, there can be bad pizza. I had Abby's pizza over the weekend. It was really good. I mean, Nobody I've talked cares. to you know I've talked you know? to New Yorkers, and they say there's definitely bad pizza, especially out here in the Northwest. Yeah, there's such a thing. I mean, but I would still eat it. I mean, I get what he's saying. Uh, by the way, I didn't mention on the Chip Kelly front, Deshaun Foster in as the new coach at UCLA. Uh, that will move the NIL uh, meter at that school. It will please some of the alumni. I don't know if he's going to win though. I don't know. I have no uh, proof of performance for Foster. Does it work in your mind? No, just because. But I don't think it's on Deshaun Foster. I think it's the fact that I just don't know who can win at UCLA consistently. Like I think you could put in Nick Saban there. I don't know how successful successful the Bruins are actually going to be, especially into the Big Ten. So I don't put it on Deshaun. But I think. It's an interesting hire because we talk about recruiting and how important it can be NIL, how important we know that is the transfer portal. Like he's going to connect with these kids and that's about our reports. He has a good pulse on that locker room and they all respect him. They all like him. He played on the highest level, like second round pick. Like he was a really yeah. good player. So I think he has a lot of things going for him. I just think the fact that he's at UCLA, like that's going to be the biggest hurdle. And so I just don't trust UCLA to be any good. So I, I, I would say no, that he's not going to be that success, successful. Well, that, of course, brings us to the big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, the 49ers players say they didn't know the new Super Bowl overtime rules. Chiefs said they knew everything about it. Did you know the new overtime rules for the Super Bowl? Dean Blandino on Westwood One broke it down. Walk us through. There would have been a second overtime. Sure. So we're basically starting a new game. So while there was three seconds left on the clock, it was really the first quarter. So had time expired, we would have went to the other end of the field and basically started the second quarter. So there isn't a time limit like there is in the regular season. Postseason, you're starting a new game. Both teams have to have a possession. And obviously, 49ers kick the field goal on their possession. KC supersedes that with a touchdown. And here we are. There you are. Uh, Had uh, Kansas City scored the touchdown of 49ers had scored. The Chiefs say they would have went for two, Stephen, to try to end the game right there, uh, taking control of their destiny. It's one more thing Kyle Shanahan, I think, is going to have to uh, figure out uh, at the uh, in, in this offseason. To spin it positive, though, if you're a Niner fan, and I am, um, I'm looking at Brock Purdy in his second season. I'm looking at Shanahan. I see some deficiencies on this 49ers team. I think they need a little bit of help on the offensive line, particularly the right side of the offensive line. I think they maybe need to evaluate, uh, you know, a little bit on the defense. You know, can there be upgrades there? But other than that, I think this is a team that just needs to season a little bit and and marinate a little bit. And Brock Purdy in year three, year four, uh, see where it goes. Shanahan in the Super Bowl twice in the last five years and in the FC title game three years in a row. I, you know, I, I look at it and go, okay, you're not Marv Levy yet. You know, give give it an opportunity and run it back next year. But um, 
You know, last night's game was just the second of 58 Super Bowls to be tied at regulation, and the first played under the new rules that ensure that both teams get a chance to possess the ball. Do you think, um, who do who do you put more blame on? Is it on Purdy or is it on Shanahan? You look at the stats for the 49ers receivers, they're kind of weird, right? Like, Chris McCaffrey, eight catches. Juwan Jennings, four catches on five targets. Ayuk was only three catches. Uh, Debo, three catches on 11 targets. Yeah. Like, is that on Brock Purdy or is that on Kyle Shanahan for not putting them in the right spots? I think some of it, you got to give some credit to the Chiefs' defense. I thought the Chiefs did a really nice job of keeping and avoiding separation for the receivers. And the Niners very infrequently found receivers open. And more often than not, it was not the first option, right? It wasn't Debo Samuel or George Kittle running in space, it it was Jennings who had the big day. And I think part of the reason why Jennings had the big day was because he's not drawing Trent McDuffie in coverage, you know, and he, you know, he's not, he's not getting Snead in coverage. He's getting, um, you know, a, a, the third or fourth best defensive back that's out there. And so I think part of it was give the, the Chiefs some credit. I also think that the Niners, I, I just think situationally, they got away from their identity, particularly in the third quarter. This is a team that needs to run the ball even like Jonathan Smith used to stay at Oregon State. Sometimes you run the ball just to bloody up the defense. They really got away through six straight passes on a uh, two possessions in the second half in the third quarter. They really got away I think from what what they are and who the, what their identity is and I think that hurt them as much as anything. And so I'm not really going to put it on, you know, they were trying to get the ball to Debo, they were trying to get the ball to Kittle. I think the Chiefs we're making it difficult. And between the pass rush of Jones and the good defensive backs, that's not a bad combination for for Kansas City. Uh, Niners got to do better and got to do more, though. Uh, and I obviously, uh, you're not going to win a lot of Super Bowl scoring 19 points in regulation. All right, coming up, we'll do the Punch It audio, and we're going to visit with Mark Gonzalez, Baseball America. He had a great piece on the Pac-12. Leave it here. Well, we missed it on the broadcast. There was no Tony Romo... Uh, on this one, but apparently there was some uh, streakers that uh, got on the field during the Super Bowl. Supposedly the most secure event in the world. People are uh, out running around on the field. <laughs> it's not like you can put a fence up and keep the streakers out. But, and I guess... You know, some people who are streaking are parlaying that into uh, into big business. There have been uh, cases, and I'm not going to name their names, of Super Bowl streakers who, by the time they get bailed out, you know, have a couple hundred thousand followers on on the, the socials. Streaker ran on the field at Allegiant Stadium, and. Uh, Security made a nice form tackle around the 10-yard line. But uh, the man had his shirt off. He had his pants down around his knees. He was wearing black undergarments. I don't get the streaking. What's it about? What's it about, Steven? Uh, it's about the attention, about going viral. I think you said, like, if you get your name out of who you actually are, you may get some followers for it. People think it's funny. I don't know. I'm Maybe I'm an old man. Sometimes I think it's funny. I think I think the hits are funnier. Like when the security guard hits them, I think that's fun. Or yeah. they tase them, I think that's fun. But because uh, a lot of those security guards are like former athletes, 
some of them are law enforcement officers. Some of them are just kind of wanting to be law enforcement officers, <laughs> like and the, this is their golden moment. Yeah, like the actual the actual streaker is not funny. It's the aftermath is funny, or when you know when Kevin Harlan is announcing the streaker going down the field. That's the funny part. But anything else, nah, I'm out on it. Two individuals rush the field in the third quarter, so interrupting a third down play. We saw it on you know watching the game, but um, were they inspired by? Uh, by uh, Usher, and by the way, the referee sta- told the teams the streakers did not impact the play, so uh, there was no need to do it over, because otherwise it would have been, it was a third down play, and Patrick Mahomes hit McCole Hardman for a two-yard gain, it was short, and then Harrison Butker had to come in and kick a field goal, and made it 10-6, but uh, I can't imagine, like, I gotta think they paid to get into the game, we saw the prices. Like, you know, are, are you really going to leave in the third quarter, <laughs> you know, in in cuffs? That's how you want to go out? Maybe they got in free. I don't know. Maybe they're working the game or something. Um, but you could not pay me enough to wear those yellow jackets and chase those uh, streakers with their pants down around their ankles as they are trying to get off the field. All right, let's play some Punch It audio coming up uh, at 424. Mark Gonzalez from Baseball America will be joining us. In the 5 o'clock hour, Reagan Beers, Oregon State women's basketball star. She is the Pac-12 Women's Player of the Week, second time this season, second time in a month. Reagan Beers and Oregon State have it going. They're 20-3. and The Portland Regional will be at Moda Center. Could they play there? And could they play deep into the tournament? We'll talk about it with Reagan Beers coming up at 524. Let's go. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Kansas City Chief of Police Stacy Graves says they are ready for Wednesday. Parade is set for Wednesday in Kansas City. Taylor Swift, by the way, has a show in Australia on Friday. Here's the chief of police. Punch it. Yeah, maybe this is for Chief Graves. Are you prepared one way or another if she does show up? Obviously, that might change security at a parade. Absolutely. We're prepared. We will have at least 600 Kansas City, Missouri police officers in and around the route. We will have over 250 outside agencies, about 34 other law enforcement agencies, as well as our federal partners. Um, we are ready every year, which thankfully we have another year. Um, we get better and better. We just we, we look at what we could have done better on the last one just to make sure that every time it's, it's just a safer and safer environment for everyone to have fun. Kind of a flex there by Chief Graves. You know, we're getting better. We just did this last year. We're just in, we're refining our uh, parade policing you know kind of a flex for every city portland that hasn't had a major professional championship portland you know police chief in kansas city saying you know we're getting so good at this we get another chance to practice it uh should taylor swift go to the parade i kind of think she's got to see it through doesn't she I would yeah. think so. Yeah, but there did there were some videos last night of her like at the club after the game. She did like a little uncomfortable like with the fan. There's like some fans there and it was mm. like it, you know, it wasn't the VIP area, which is obvious like oh. she, you know, she she deserves to be in the VIP and she deserves to have security around her. She was like within the people and she just looked a little uncomfortable. So I 
I imagine that parade is going to be insane. But yeah, I mean, maybe if she's on the on the little, you know, the cars or the vehicles with Travis Kelsey, yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be, that'd be it would be a spectacle, that's for sure. Yeah, they're going to let her in the parade. She has to be up there. She cannot be in the crowd. But I think, yeah, it's got to be a weird experience for her because she probably, like a lot of major stars, like next to the president of the United States, receives a lot of that VIP treatment. I mean, frankly, the fact that her plane left Japan and was tracked by everybody as it flew across the country into L.A., flew across the ocean into L.A., and then, you know, she connects into Vegas. You know, my daughters were interested because I was looking at the plane, and they were like, what does it look like? And I and I looked up the tail number of the plane, and I was like, here's the plane. Here's the inside of the plane. They were fascinated by it, and I was like, okay. You know, but I she just lives a different life, right? And so, yeah, of course, if she's in Vegas and she's in a public setting, that's not a safe place for Taylor Swift to be. Probably not. Like, you know, as much as, like, I don't want to allow anybody to really be a prima donna, she's she's kind of allowed to be one. Like, I kind of get it if she's not there, right? Like, yeah, the, this yeah. is going to be a raucous crowd. And I also get why she would be uncomfortable in Vegas. I'm uncomfortable sometimes in those crowds. All right, Chris Jones. He says the Niners are crazy for taking the ball at the start of overtime. Punch it. They're crazy. They're crazy. Yeah. Yes, because the overtime rule has changed where both teams get the ball, no matter who scores. So, you know, uh, originally you want to let you want to let the other team get the ball, stop them holding the three, so you know where you got. Or if you stop when they play, then all you have to do is get three. Yeah, it's hard to hear him there, but he's basically saying like, if the Niners had deferred after they won the toss in overtime, and they had said, "Look, uh, we we're going to kick off here. Chiefs are going to get the ball first then, you know, Kansas City scores a field goal or a touchdown. At least you know what you're competing against. And there was a strategic advantage to going second, particularly if you've got a player like Patrick Mahomes, because now you know, hey, you know, we only need a field goal to tie a touchdown to win. And you would know if the 49ers had scored a touchdown, hey, we we need to use all four downs here. Every time we need to use all four downs because we know we need to score. So it does give a little bit of an advantage. Kyle Juszczyk, for 49ers fullback, says he didn't know there was a difference in overtime. Punch it. You know what? I didn't even realize that the the playoff rules were different in overtime. So I I assumed you just want the ball because you score a touchdown and win. But I guess that's not the case. Um, so I don't really – I don't totally know the strategy there. No. No, we haven't talked about it. Yikes. Like, you know, but look, again, this is a fullback. I'm not going to put it on a player. The coaching staff needed to know the rules. That's their job. It's not like Kyle Juszczyk is going to be the one deciding do they take the ball or give the ball. He's out there deciding what to do when the play's called. So I, I just find it interesting that the Chiefs, who had been there before, who had been around it, apparently had discussed this and knew what was going on. Christian McCaffrey, 49ers running back, says that the uh, the self-inflicted wounds hurt the most. Punch it. Yeah, you know, I, I look at our offense. For us, one, like I said, man, keep saying it, just self-inflicted wounds. Can't put the ball on the ground first drive there. Got to get points, and, um, you know, that's it. There it is. McCaffrey talking about that he had a fumble in the very first possession. Very uncharacteristic. I think it was only his third fumble of the season. With as many carries as he had, just uh, really 
uh, unfortunate thing to happen. Kyle Shanahan and Andy Reid did not shake hands after the game. Kyle Shanahan said that was all part of the plan. Listen here, punch it. No, we talked on Monday. I mean, last year, or when we played each other last time, it was, you know, it took about 25 minutes to actually shake his hand. So we both talked on Monday that um, regardless of who won, um, I mean, I love Andy. I'm tight with Andy. And we, but we talked. Both of us are going to do that because it's too hard to get to each other after these Super Bowls. Can you imagine Andy Reid trying to swim through a sea of celebratory uh, chiefs to try to get to Kyle Shanahan? And, uh, look, I, I think this is uh, great that they had thought that through. I wish that Kyle Shanahan had thought the overtime rules through. Although, although I don't think it was the biggest sin in the game. Like, when I go back and I think about how this game got away from the Niners, yeah, there's a strategy mistake there, but there were so many execution plays, the punt that ends up as a turnover, the, uh, the inability to get the ball into George Kittle's hands really at any point of the game. I mean, there's just so many little things that I thought were uh, were problems for the 49ers in the end. Kyle Shanahan was asked, did he think about going for it on fourth down and four in overtime? He did not, but hear it in his words. Punch it. No, we never thought about there, fourth and four. I mean, even if we do go and score, they still can go down and match it. And um, So, no, there wasn't a thought there. Bigger problem was they just could not get the ball to an open receiver on third and four. You got one job, block Chris Jones, and they didn't get it done. Patrick Mahomes, always playing the underdog role, says they didn't feel like underdogs. Punch it. Because because they uh, they counted us out. They they counted us out the whole way, Um, and uh, I thought the guys just continued to battle, and um, it wasn't pretty, um, but we got it done, and at the end, we're the world champs. Who counted him out? I just love it, but I think it gives us a, a glimpse into the psyche of a high-level superstar player. Well, I would argue, John, the Chiefs were underdogs the last three games. But who counted him out? Don't be two-point underdog. Come on. I mean, but they were you know, te- te- technically, John, they were underdogs. I mean, no one counted him out, but no one thought they would win, right? Like, if you're looking at that and I'm a Chief, I'm like, they don't think we're going to win this game? We're the Chiefs. I think that superstar players that are high-level competitors will often reach for a slight or a chip to put on their shoulder or it's me against the world or us against the world. And I think Patrick Mahomes is no different than Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan who do the same damn thing. They counted us out. But at the beginning of the year, I got to think that the Chiefs, I don't, I don't look at the odds, but they had to be in the among the top three choices on the board. Not exactly counted out. Travis Kelsey says there's unfinished business. As much as the Niners are talking about next year, so is Travis Kelsey. Punch it. Well, you know, the goal's always been to get three. But we couldn't get here without getting the two and having that target on our back all year. And I love these guys right here. The men that we just won this thing with, family forever, baby. I couldn't be more proud of you guys. And how about it? We get a chance to do it three times in a row. How do you get excited for that, baby? You go party in Las Vegas and get back to it. Hey, you still got to fight for your right, don't you? You got to fight for your right. <laughs> Believe it, baby. I'll see y'all next year. Thank you, Travis. I love how Jim Nance is his hype guy. <laughs> oh, man. 
Travis Kelsey. Are you tired of him yet, Stephen? Yeah, I just I was shaking my head throughout the whole thing there. I just whatever, man. <laughs> Go away. My favorite part of any Super Bowl is when they put a microphone in front of the owner. Here's Clark Hunt on the Chiefs dynasty. Punch it. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate Andy, the football team, our coaching staff on an incredible performance. And it's been an amazing five-year run. I want to thank the Lord for giving us this opportunity. Watching today's game, I couldn't help but think about my parents and how proud they would be of this football team. At their heart, they were the biggest Chiefs fans in the world, and they would love celebrating another world championship with the best fans in the NFL, Chiefs Kingdom. Nothing like putting the fan base to sleep after they fought for their right to party. But that's what Clark Hunt tried to do in the end. Uh, One of the big plays of the game, you know, Jake Moody, 49ers rookie kicker, has his kicked blocked. Niners had a chance to go up four in the fourth quarter. This was a pivotal play. Punch it. Jawan Jennings, 17 of his 25 catches is Moody. Extra point. Oh, my goodness. No. It is blocked. How big is that now? A three-point game. Turns out it was pretty big because it opened the door for Patrick Mahomes to only have to trade field goals with the 49ers and not need a touchdown in the final uh, minute of the game. And uh, that's how it went down as, uh, you know, the Chiefs got to 19 and sent the game to overtime. Was that a bigger play than the punt? Was the punt muff or the missed extra point a bigger blow to the Niners' chance of success? I think it's the punt. I think the punt because I, I really think that the Chiefs were struggling so badly offensively like there was a couple times where it seemed like you know the 49ers intercepted Mahomes at the start of the yeah. second half, and you thought the Niners need to take a chance here, and they didn't. They played a conservative, they punted it back, and the Chiefs were getting nowhere. So I felt like the Chiefs' offense needed some type of spark, and that really did it for them because it was one play later, Mahomes throws the touchdown pass, and it seemed like okay, now now there's got to be some scoring, and I believe there was five straight possessions that team that the team scored after that muff punt. So I do think that kind of kicked off the scoring. And that's when Mahomes kind of got back in the game. I, I just felt like that was the point of the game where the Niners, they hang on to that ball, man. They go down, they get a field goal, they get a touchdown, that game's over. That punt was such a fluky play. But anybody who's been around football or watched football or played football knows you have to get away from the ball. If you are not receiving that kick, you get away from it. It cannot touch you. That is especially not in a Super Bowl. You cannot afford to give the team, the opposing team, possession in that situation. I thought the Chiefs, just in general, won special teams. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty convincing win on special teams. If you're talking about three phases of the game, that was probably the biggest edge. Like you know, the offenses played pretty much to a stalemate. The defenses were both really good and situationally opportunistic, but the Chiefs won the special teams battle by virtue of. You know, Betker's kicking and and the punting in the punt game. Finally, we've talked a little bit about Kyle Shanahan, the criticism of Shanahan as it pertains to receiving the kickoff in overtime, kicking the ball off in overtime. Here's Shanahan's explanation. Punch it. Uh, This is something we talked about with 
you know, none of us have a ton of experience of it, but we went through all the analytics and talked to those guys, and we just thought it'd be better. We wanted the ball third. Um, the both teams matched and scored. We wanted to be the ones who had the chance to go win, and um, we got that field goal, so we knew we had to hold them to at least to a field goal, and if, if we did, then we thought it was in our hands after that. Yeah, and and here's the deal. Niners get the ball first in overtime. If they score, no matter what they do, Chiefs will get the ball, and they'll know exactly what they have to do. And the Chiefs later said, play, Chiefs players said they they would go for two. You know, if the 49ers scored a touchdown, the Chiefs would have sc- tried to score a touchdown and go for two. They were going to end it there. There was going to be no third possession. And that's what Shanahan, I guess, did not realize. Well, that kind of describes Shanahan to me, just sums it up. Like, he's so conservative, he's thinking about the third possession rather than going for the win now. Like, it, it just... I don't think it cost them the game by any means, but at the same time, like, understand what's happening. I think that Andy Reid may go for two in this spot. Like, that's how good they are. So, I don't know. It just, it's wacky that a lot of the players admitted they didn't know the rules either, man. It's just a weird look. Here's the other thing. If if you're going to take the ball in that situation, you got to go for it on the fourth down and four, do you not? Or you at least have to think hard about it. And he said he never thought about it. Because I would be thinking, if you're going to take the ball first, you better put seven up there. And the only, the only reason why I wouldn't have put the defense on the field to start the overtime was the defense had been on the field at the end of regulation. And I kind of wondered if maybe the strategy was to interrupt Patrick Mahomes, let him sit on the you know sideline, because the Niners did drive for like seven, eight minutes, right? Took a bunch of time off the clock before they handed the ball over. And if, 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 if uh, Shanahan comes out and says, look, my thinking was we had been on the field too long as a defense. I wanted to put their offense on the sideline, we felt like we could drive the ball, and we were going to play four-down territory all the way down because we wanted to put a seven up there because we know they're going to get a chance to match it, and we know a field goal is not going to be enough to trade field goals. Like, we're going for it here. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, we thought, we go, they go, and we'll get the final opportunity. That's, you know, I guess you sunk my battleship strategy there. All right, leave it here. We're going to talk with Mark Gonzalez. He had a great piece for Baseball America. Later in the show, Reagan Beers, Oregon State women's basketball player in the 5 o'clock hour. Leave it here. Our next guest is a fantastic source, particularly when it comes to writing on baseball. For 32 years, Mark Gonzalez has been a Baseball Writers of Association member. He has uh, covered baseball, among other things. He wrote a great piece on the farewell to the Pac-12 for Baseball America. He's joining us now. Uh, Mark, really nice job on that. Thank you. I uh, really got emotional toward the end, uh, wrapping up the story, just you know, recollecting on all the conversations I had with so many great people that have served in the conference in baseball and my own personal observations uh, going back to my first game in 1971 and then covering Stanford in 1988 when they won the World Series title. Uh, just a lot of great memories throughout the conference, and to see it end, uh, it's going to be a sad day. Yeah, these teams, especially baseball in the western part of the United States, uh, have you know mixed it up over the years. Um, when you think back to the memories you have, let's go back to that first season you're talking about, You know, and you go back that far. You know, What do you remember of the conference early on when you started covering it? Well, you know, ASU had came onto the scene 
in the early 80s, but it was so competitive right off the bat. And, you know, you look at when they ASU and Arizona joined the conference, they won World Series titles, you know, right off the bat. And so they, they, they took notice right away. If, uh, they're going to be a force. And then, you know, USC held its own for a while, kind of slipped by, and then Stanford came on board. And, and to win, you know, consecutive national titles, uh, some people at Stanford told me at the time that was probably the greatest athletic achievement in school history. Now, you can argue their, their Rose Bowl wins in 70 and 71, but uh, what Coach Marcus did during that time was remarkable. Then, you, you know, we can get into the players, you know, the McGuire's, the Bonds, Odeby McDowell's, you know, Cal, you know, Jeff Kent, uh, Stanford with Messina, Stan Spencer, who's from Vancouver area. Uh, everybody was just loaded. UCLA, too, of God, Gary Adams. Uh, you know, he didn't have the greatest record, but he could recruit some great players. So uh, it was a heavyweight heavyweight match every weekend. Yeah, we're talking about, you mentioned in the piece, Reggie Jackson at Arizona State, certainly uh, Barry Bonds at Arizona State, Trevor Hoffman at Arizona, Messina, Jeffrey Hammonds at Stanford, Randy Johnson at USC, uh, Tom Seaver, uh, people may not remember at USC as well, but uh, more than 100 active major leaguers come from the Pac-12. Um, in your piece, you know, you quoted a variety of people. As you kind of went around and talked to baseball people about the Pac-12, you know, did you get a general sentiment of how, you know, even people that have connections to some of the departing schools feel about it? Yeah, there's there's a, a sense of uh, sadness I think throughout uh, the programs to, to some degree. You know, John Savage had a terrific recruiting class. Uh, he's pretty much gung ho about that. I understand it, but you know, we'll see after a year when you're doing all the traveling, uh, dealing with the elements in the Midwest, which you know I'm familiar with, haven't lived there uh, for 18 years. So, uh, but. The prevailing thought is it, it's sad that it came down to this. Uh, it, it is a sign of the times. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we'll ever come close to uh, reviving what it stood for 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 the last you know 50, 60 years. So um, it is. A, it, it's going to be a sad day. You know, May 25th, uh, conference championship game at Scottsdale Stadium. I plan to be there, and it's going to be a sad day. Mark Gonzalez with us. He had a great piece for Baseball America today. I tweeted it out. Give it a look if you are somebody who cares about the Pac-12, certainly cares about baseball. How do you think, you know, you mentioned, you know, one of the programs. How do you think the Pac-12 programs that are departing, how does this change them when they start playing teams in other parts of the country or traveling to the Big Ten? Or does it change them at all in your mind? I think it'll really change some schools. Uh, I'm very curious to see what the, the Southern California schools, how they fare uh, in the Midwest, especially in February and, and, and March. And they, oh, they probably won't go there in February, but March and early April for sure. And, you know, I always had a scout once tell me that to be careful uh, when you're scouting kids that come from Southern California and go uh, to the Midwest, East Coast. It's a tough transition for them. It takes mm-hmm. them a while. And then, you know, your kids are going to be missing a lot of school too. I'm not sure if there's a system that's going to be set up to where uh, you have a system where kids can study while they're back there or if you play back-to-backs and do what, like, the 49ers used to do 
they play back-to-backs on the East Coast and just stay out there. Same for the East Coast football teams when they come to the West Coast and have uh, consecutive games on weekends. So um, there's a lot to be resolved there. Uh, certainly the same applies to the Oregon and Washington schools, but those kids are used to playing in uh, cooler elements. So uh, we haven't even talked about Stanford and Cal. I think that's even a, a greater task with an extra time zone to contend with. Yeah, and I, I always wonder about kids who maybe grow up on the West Coast, Mark, that want their parents want to see them play. We don't think about it as much with football, but I think that, you know, in baseball families, those are families that have traveled all summer, all spring to see their kids play. And I just don't know if kids going to Stanford or Cal, if their families are going to go, okay, let's go play an ACC schedule and travel across the country. Does that come up as a factor in recruiting at all? Yes, I think it does. You know, I, I watched uh, a few games when I moved down here last May, and I noticed that, uh, you know, a couple of USC parents would uh, get a, uh Airbnb house and, and, and hang out for, for, you know, five, ten days because after they played U of A, uh, they came up to Scottsdale for the tournament. It was very convenient to just hang out there. But, you know, we're talking uh, different time zones, different mileage and all that. Uh, it's, it's a different landscape, and I, I'd be – curious to see how how many parents travel even close to what they used to travel because heck in the old six pack everybody was almost within an hour hour and change of each other so it was easy for parents to to, uh travel and see their kids play away we're talking to mark gonzalez he's covered baseball for the better part of three to four decades he had a great piece for baseball america uh, posted today. Mark, uh, think back in your time covering this conference. Best two or three players you ever saw play in person? Wow. Uh, you know, it's funny. I thought, and a few other people agreed with me, that they thought that Odeby McDowell was better at that time than Barry Bonds. That's how loaded that outfield was at Arizona State. Um, I was lucky as a kid to see Steve Busby pitch for USC at Santa Clara in a, in a district district eight game. Uh, I also saw Mark Pryor throw a three hit complete game against U of A in, in 2001. Uh, so many good players. You know, I, I covered Messina too at Stanford. He was he was pretty good. Uh, Hall of Famer, of course. Randy Johnson was a little raw at the time, but he got it together eventually. But you know, the fastball was there. So you know, and the other thing too is, and John Savage pointed out to me. Look at all the great two-sport athletes that have played in this conference, especially in baseball. I mean, Jackie Robinson, John Elway, to name two. You know, UCLA's had had quite a few, too. Uh, USC going back to the, the, the 70s. And, you know, here's a great trivia question. Who hit the first homer at, at Dato Field? It was hmm. Anthony Davis. Hmm. That's, how, that's how loaded schools were. You know, Larry Reynolds, the famous agent, baseball agent, he played football and baseball at, at at Stanford. So did uh, Ray Anderson, the former AD at ASU, who's who played at Stanford and excelled in two sports. So I mean, we can go on and on about this. You know, Mark, um, you know, as a fan who might want to see games this spring, where would you advise people to go if they want a taste of the final offering of the Pac-12? Is it as simple as being there at the conference tournament or are there a couple series that jump off the schedule at you well i'm lucky down i live in arizona because you have all the college tournaments down here 
And I know Oregon State's uh, well entrenched and surprised. So you can catch them there, then head over to, to uh, Phoenix Muni. ASU is opening up against Santa Clara, same weekend. USC is here playing BYU, Grand Canyon, my employer, and Ohio State. You know, U of A is at home, I believe, at the same time. So uh, the start off this started off this weekend's got a lot down here. But then uh, once you get into conference play, boy, it's you you can pick a lot of series. You know, we haven't even mentioned the Beavers, and they're they're the favorites, and rightfully so. So um, it's just it's just it's just sad that it's uh, going to break up after this. But you know. That's the way things are in life sometimes. Mark Gonzalez with us, Baseball America. Mark, um, Oregon State, you know, multiple national championships with Pat Casey. Mitch Canham now facing a future that, you know, is going to have Oregon State play as an independent. How is that being greeted in the baseball world? Can Will they be able to pull that off? I think they will, and I'll say this because of the fan base the way that that program's been cultivated into a power, first with Pat Casey, and then he's, he's in my conversation when he was very pleased with the way uh, uh, Canham's really promoted the program and talked about Oregon State, just Oregon State, and not the fact they play in the conference, that Oregon State can stand on its own. Then you look at uh, the ballpark they got. It's very uh, cozy for a, for a home team, and, you know, they host the regionals there, so that goes a long way. So, um I think they can sustain it for a while. I mean, it's, it's a national program. And when you win, you know, three national titles uh, in, what, 15 years or so? I mean, that's that says a lot. Yeah, I think, too, that in baseball, it's a little easier to pick up a series here or a two-game series there. And, you know, if Oregon State can continue to play Stanford and play Cal, play UCLA, play Oregon, suddenly you, you can piece together a schedule that works and, because strength of schedule is so important, you know, that, that will help teams uh, to play them. And so, uh, you know, as long as they can stay uh, relevant, I think they can pull it off. Um, I'm also hopeful, maybe like you, Mark, that someday this all gets put back together. Is anybody talking about that when you have these conversations? Do they say, hey, maybe football splits away? Or is everybody just kind of focused on what is happening right now? I think right now the the, the hope of, of getting things back together regionally is kind of kind of pie in the sky right now. I think everybody's curious to see how this plays out. But I think if uh, there are some problems which, which happens in the future, then I think that you could see uh, a lot of these schools you know, galvanize. I really do think so because uh, they realize that travel is going to be an issue. Missing class is going to be an issue. It just seems like there was a lot of great camaraderie uh, among the West Coast coaches, even though they were rivals, it seemed like they were they were out to look out for each other for the greater good of, of conference play, to represent the West Coast, represent the Pac-12. Uh, that goes a long way. Oregon State projected by Baseball America as the top team: Stanford, UCLA, USC, and Oregon, all in the top five. Mark, I love what you're doing. Are you having fun? You've moved to Arizona from Chicago. Are you having fun seeing good weather and some good baseball? Yeah, it's it's 64 right now and sunny as we speak. I'm going to go to three games this weekend, you know, watch BYU and USC, uh, Grand Canyon, USC, you know, Ohio State's in town, our new coach, Bill Mozello. Uh Michigan's out here with uh, 
Tracy Smith who used to be at ASU. A lot of good baseball down here, and the weather is good so far. So I'll keep my fingers crossed that that's going to continue. Give me an idea. Like, when, how did you fall in love with baseball? And, and uh, you know, I think it's the hardest beat because of the travel and the grind over the years. But, you know, you did it. Chicago Tribune, among other places. You know, how, what, where did you get the bug for baseball? Well, I think, uh, you know, growing up in Santa Clara, our Little League, Briarwood Little League, went to the uh, Little League World Series Championship in 1969, and uh, Carney Lansford was the best player on that team, and I was fortunate to grow up with his younger brothers who became number one picks in 78 and 79, respectively. And just being around the game, being around some good coaches, good people, uh, you know, Mark Langston pitched for a rival high school in my town, so uh, it was a big deal. And just getting to know people, uh, the, you know, the college game still, you know, still I have a, a soft spot in my heart for because of the good people associated with the game, especially on the West Coast. We had Joe Madden on the show. I think it was last week. He was fan, fantastic. I, I got to think that mo- a lot of your time with Joe Madden was, it was spent not talking baseball, talking about other things. You've bugged my phone. <laughs> have I? You must have known. You must have known we're talking about because. Joe and I are all over the place. I mean, we you know we can talk about cars or, you know, the late great Ken Revisa, who was a sports psychologist, who really had an impact on on Joe's life, and certainly uh, shared some things with me that I've I've, I've treasured and, and kept to myself for a while. Uh, Joe's Joe's terrific. He was funny because, you know, we were talking about uh, you know he was with the Angels, uh, not as a manager, but in that 2001 World Series with Bonds just hitting home runs seemingly every other at bat. I think he's, you know, his slugging percentage was like 770 for the series. And he said, uh, you know, we thought we could pitch to him because he hadn't seen our pitchers. And then he said he hit a ball further than anybody had ever seen a ball hit. And suddenly we went, nope, we're not going to pitch to him anymore. Um, you know, what, what, are, what are your memories? Of, of, you remember covering Madden. What did, what did you get out of that experience? I, I loved it. I thought it was neat. You know, sometimes his, his theme uh, trips where guys dress up kind of went too, a little too far at times. But his thinking, I, I, I went along with it. I understood it for the most part. Sometimes you don't, just, you don't agree with what a manager does, but you understand the thinking and some of the out-of-the-box stuff. You know, a lot, lot was made about him not forcing his players to take batting practice, saving your energy. That was a big thing. Uh, spring training, he seemed to know when to throttle back and then get the guys ready. Uh, at the same time, he would, uh, wouldn't be afraid to pull a pitcher. And the third or fourth inning, he knew about that, quote, inning a decision where, you know, you got to make a move, stop the bleeding, and, and get back in the game. And a lot of times it worked out for him. It didn't go over well with the starting pitcher, but it paid off in the end. And so I, I like Joe. He, his managing kind of kept us on, his to- on our toes, but it, it was very invigorating to cover him for, you know, six, seven years. Yeah, you were, uh, you know, you covered the White Sox and the Cubs, and then you also covered the Diamondbacks for the Arizona Republic. How different were the White Sox and Cubs organizations to cover? Day and night. Uh, White Sox were more, you know, family run. Uh, they didn't really uh, invest heavily in both player development and the big league roster. It was mostly the big league roster. Uh, they were they were a very loyal organization almost to a fault, and that they didn't really go out and fire a lot of people. 
uh, nor did they spend a lot on free agents. They seem to kind of find a way to, to get things done. Many times they fall short, but there was never a dull moment. While the Cubs were, uh, you know, kind of corporately run, except except certain things were uh, Theo Epstein when he came on board. I mean, they they tore it down, stripped it down uh, to its bare parts, and then built back up with you know high draft picks and then free agency. It, it seemed to blend together in 2015 and 16, and then I think. Uh, the lack of a, of a productive farm system really uh, hurt hurt them in the end, and, and I think it also hurt Joe uh, in the end, not having those young prospects still come up and, and, and give you a good start or two. They just didn't have that, that surplus of depth that they once had. Mark Gonzalez, read him in Baseball America. Follow him on Twitter. Gonzo, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me on. Take care. All right, there he is. From sunny Arizona on the Pac-12 Conference, baseball and more, May 25th. The final baseball game in Pac-12 as we know it, history. It'll also be the final, if I'm not mistaken, conference game in any sport on May 25th uh, in Arizona. Leave it here. You got the BFT. I was reading a story today. Did you ever watch the movie Elf? Christmas time movie, Will Ferrell. It's got, you know, the elf in it. Bernard the Elf is part of the thing. Do you watch movies, Stephen? Do you, do you, does, it, does Elf ring a bell? Yeah, Buddy the Elf. Yeah, I, that's a, it's a great Christmas movie. One of is the it Buddy? Ones. No, but Buddy, but then there was Bernard, who was, he was uh, in the movie, but he was one of the elves. Well, like Wolf, the real, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, Will Ferrell's Buddy. Yeah, 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 right, right. But there was Bernard, there was Bernard the Elf. And uh, and uh, in the uh, David Crumholtz played the the right hand elf to uh, Santa, right? So he's been there for thousands of years. Okay, and, and it's in this. This isn't an elf. This is from the Santa Claus movie. Yeah, that's a Santa Claus. Santa Claus movie. Okay, so I'm confusing my Christmas movies. Anyway, Bernard the elf in Santa Claus, Tim Allen movie. So um, I was reading this thing. David Crumholtz, who's the actor who played Bernard, got asked to go and be part of the Christmas parade at Disney. And this is in Florida. And he was going to be flown down there, and he was going to be part of the parade, and he was really excited about it because he was like, hey, this is like, he was in his 20s, you know. He was like, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm going to get the blue carpet treatment from Disney. I was in a Disney movie, and this is awesome. And he was, you know, still looking back at the movie, the Santa Claus movie with Tim Allen. He said the makeup for it was just horrendous. They had to put on like three hours of makeup every day. Tim Allen had to do it. The elves had to do it. And then they had to film. And that's part of the job, though. But he thought, this is cool. I'm going to be in a parade. And they told him, you'll be on a float with Hillary Duff in the Disney parade for Christmas. And it's going to be televised. And it's going to be awesome. And he thought, this is cool. I'm going to get paid. I'm going to get to be myself, an actor, and I'm going to be on the parade. And so he goes down to Disney with his friends, and he get, enjoys like two days of getting into the park for free, getting the pass to go to the front of the line, going on all the rides. He's a big Disney fan, so he's loving it. And then he shows up the next day, you know, for the parade, and he's told, um, you know, you need to get into makeup. And he was like, what are you talking about? 
And he said, they said, you need to get in there. You're riding on the float with Hillary Duff. And he said, I know that, but I'm riding as me. And they said, no, you're riding as Bernard the Elf. <laughs> and so they had his elf ears and his costume. And Krumholtz says he refused to put on the costume. And he said, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to be Bernard the Elf. I want to be David Krumholtz, the actor in this parade. And so there was a bunch of back and forth with his publicist and whatnot and Disney, and they were upset about it. There's a director. And like, because this is going to be like a made-for-TV movie. And the compromise that he suggested was, could he just ride in a carriage in front of the Hillary Duff float and they could say David Krumholtz, who played Bernard the Elf on the side of the carriage, <laughs> which nobody wants to see that. Like, we want to see you in the damn costume with the ears and the hat and everything. And so Krumholtz said, you know, everyone was upset about it. Like at one point of the parade, he turns around and waves at Hillary Duff and she gives him a shrug like, what the heck were you thinking? Like, you you blew this. You were supposed to be on this thing. I, I was going to have Bernard the Elf on my float. Now I got you in a carriage in front of me, and nobody knows who you are. And he said throughout the whole parade, it's going through Disney, and people are yelling, who are you? <laughs> and he goes, I'm Bernard the Elf. And no one can hear him because the music's so loud. So he gets to the end, and apparently there's this closing shot where all of the characters from all of the floats are going to be shot together uh, as they're singing we wish you a merry christmas and he ends up in the middle like front and center and he's not in costume nobody knows who he is people who are in costumes including a guy in a bear costume from another movie are all asking him like why are you just not in your costume and he said i'm refusing to do it and they said good for you good for you good for you but all the other characters dressed up in their costumes and showed up to go, you know, tap dance for Disney. And he said, now it's the greatest regret of his career because what happened? He was never asked to do another Disney movie. He sometimes you got to put on the costume and you got to put on the ears and you got to go to makeup and you got to do the thing and love what you're doing, or at least try to love what you're doing. That's his lesson here. He never got asked to do another movie. How about them apples? That's why you didn't see Bernard the Elf in a spinoff. Because uh, David Krumholtz apparently decided he was too good to put the costume on and do the thing. I love that story. So it's just a reminder. Like sometimes, uh, you know, you think you're too big for the elf shoes. You're not. Put them on and get yourself on Hillary Duff's thing. He said he would do it in a heartbeat today if somebody asked him uh, to do uh, to do another. Go stand uh, by Hillary Duff. Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he said I'll do it right away. Don't even ask about it. All right. The five at five's coming up. Reagan Beers, Oregon State women's basketball player. She'll be with us in hour three. This is the happy hour. We'll talk to Reagan Beers, Oregon State women's basketball player. She is the Pac-12 Player of the Week. She'll join us coming up in about 20 minutes. Make an appointment for that if you're a Beaver fan or you want to hear a good story. She's got two brothers who play college football. Did you know that? All three of the siblings who are out of high school are playing Division I sports. She's got a younger sister 
who I'm uh, suspecting that Oregon State will be recruiting as well. Reagan Beer is coming up at 520. Really good interview. Really fun to talk with her. She's got a lot going on. We'll talk a little basketball, but a lot about life and her upbringing, which is fascinating. I still want to talk about the Niners as well. People, a lot of people asking me, how did you deal with the game? What do you mean, how did I deal with it? I'm not playing in the game. I dealt with it in, like, I watched the 49ers play. I was frustrated by some of it. I was delighted by some of it. I'm left thinking, gosh, how big does a Super Bowl feel to a player? I've covered them. I've been in the winning locker room and the losing locker room. I can tell you, that losing locker room is a quiet place. After a Super Bowl, a lot of deep thinking by the 49ers, I'm sure, in the wake of yesterday's loss in the Super Bowl. Now, how will they respond? Will they use this as a rallying point to focus around, as we have seen other teams do, and try to have their breakthrough moment next season? Or will they disappear, like the Atlanta Falcons did after blowing a 28-3 lead against the Patriots, uh, never to be seen from again, heard from again. Uh, well, that is going to lead us into the 5 at 5, the five biggest stories in sports. Let's do it. The 5 at 5. Number 1. Stephen Vaughn, you're on the clock today. Well, you said you want to talk a little bit more about the 49ers. Let's do it, John. Uh, Chiefs, they beat those 49ers in overtime in the Super Bowl 25-22. Patrick Mahomes, MVP, Chiefs Victory Parade will be on Wednesday, as you said earlier. They are getting ready for Taylor Swift just in case she comes to the uh, Victory Parade. But there were some interesting notes that happened in this Super Bowl game. Juwan Jennings of the 49ers, he's only the second player to throw a touchdown and catch a touchdown in the big game. Nick Foles is the other one, of course, the Philly Special, remember that. And uh, this one I thought was pretty interesting. The longest field goal in Super Bowl history, John, it got broken twice last night. Jake Moody, he initially set the record with the 55-yarder in the first quarter. Then Harrison Butker kicked a 57-yarder later on in the game. Over the past 30 years, there had only been one field goal attempt over uh, 54 yards or more before Moody's and Butker's both last night. That was by John Brown, Josh Brown, former Seahawks kicker. He kicked a 54-yarder, missed it. Um, and then Moody had another 53-yard attempt with under two minutes left to play that he made. That made him the first player in Super Bowl history to make multiple field goals of 50 yards or more in the same game. Um... I thought if the 49ers were to win, Juwan Jennings should have been the MVP of the game. He, he was mm. their best player, even over Christian McCaffrey, who had a nice game, but it was more quantity over quality in his runs. I thought Jennings was the best player on the 49ers. Yeah, Jennings was a difference maker. There were just a couple of players on both sides that stood out. I thought Chris Jones had a really impressive game for the Chiefs on defense. Uh, obviously, a couple of the guys uh, in the secondary for the Chiefs as well. Uh, but you mentioned the chief of police in Kansas City, Stacy Graves. The chief of police asked about the parade and the planning, and if you know who would be there, would it be a problem? Yeah, maybe this is for Chief Graves. Are you prepared one way or another if she does show up? Obviously, that might change security at a parade. Absolutely, we're prepared. We will have at least 600 Kansas City, Missouri police officers in and around the route. We will have over 250 outside agencies, about 34 other law enforcement agencies, as well as our federal partners. Um, we are ready every year which thankfully we have another year, um, we get better and better. 
we just we, we look at what we could have done better on the last one just to make sure that every time it's, it's just a safer and safer environment for everyone to have fun. Meanwhile, chief of police in San Francisco saying parade. We weren't we didn't know we would have to have one. The city of Portland has never had anything ready for anything <laughs> for the Blazers. There you go. Move it on. Number two. It always makes me happy, John, when the Las Vegas Sportsbook lose. And they did that, in fact, lose yesterday on the Super Bowl as the majority of the handle of the public was on the Chiefs and the over in the game. Now, the total was a little interesting because the game landed on 47 points after that slow start. Total opened up at 47.5, which I got, and I had the under. Then it closed at 46.5 right as the game started. So depending on when you bet, really did matter. But Caesars Vice President of Trading, Craig Mucklow, he said that the Sharps were on the 49ers. The public, they were on the cheese, so it was a great comeback by the public on that one. Um, according to the Review Journal in Vegas, the game going to overtime resulted in a multi-million dollar loss for sportsbooks, as that prop paid about 9-1. to one. Uh, So Caesars lost about seven figures for the game going to overtime just by itself, but they got a lot of it back because uh, Travis Kelsey not scoring a touchdown. There was a point during the week where there were more wagers on Travis Kelsey anytime touchdowns than wagers on the 49ers money line and spread combined. So that was a very popular bet. Um, One last betting nugget here. Uh, We need to remember this going into next season, John. The victory for Patrick Mahomes moves him to 11-1-1 against the spread as an underdog in his career. Not bad chip on his shoulder. He's a good player. He can throw the ball with that chip on his shoulder. But here's here's the other thing got me thinking, like, you know, as you're reading all that, I'm – I'm left thinking about all these specials that the online wagering entities across the country uh, offer. You know, how they'll do more than half a yard. They basically give you a winning bet. They know you're going to keep playing. They know you're going to continue to wager. They're not too worried about it. I got a feeling, though, even though the casino says the public won, that the casino knows that the public will continue to bet until they don't win. That's how it works. Number three. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but Deshaun Foster, he was named UCLA head football coach after Chip Kelly left to become the Ohio State offense coordinator. Foster actually began his coaching stint in 2013 at UCLA as a student assistant. He'd been the running backs coach for the Bruins from 2017 to 2023. He was actually hired 10 days ago as the Las Vegas Raiders running backs coach, but now he took the head job in L.A. for the Bruins. Of course, Foster was a running back for UCLA, second-round pick of the Panthers back in 20, uh, 2002. And about an hour ago, so you know, pretty recent here, recently here, Dennis Dodd, he had tweeted out that Minnesota head coach P.J. Fleck, he was one of the top mm. choices for the Bruins, according to his sources, but it was not clear on why a deal did not get done. So it seemed like they wanted a guy like P.J. Fleck, but they end up taking Deshaun Foster. I can tell you that that report comes from P.J. Fleck's agent, who's out trying to sell the narrative that P.J. was a finalist for the job. I don't know how seriously UCLA Athletic Director Martin Jarmon took P.J. Fleck because all along I felt like he would go in-house, he would go somebody who had played at UCLA. I thought Ken Norton Jr. had a shot at this. He had been, served as a linebacker coach. Here's Bruce Feldman talking about Deshaun Foster. He is really well-respected by the players and the rest of the staff. And keep in mind, right before Chip Kelly left, He pushed for all of his assistants to get new two-year deals this winter. So whoever took over was probably going to be inheriting that staff because it's not like UCLA has has Texas A&M money that they're throwing around. So in that regard, it's an interesting – the timing was tricky, but 
he was a legit candidate because of how people feel about him. And as one of the assistants told me this morning, it was like Deshaun had the pulse of the team and the pulse of the locker room. He knows how to lead. He knows how to motivate and he knows how to solve issues. And I think as a head coach, that ultimately can be a lot more important than whether you are a great play caller. And if you're Martin Jarman, the athletic director at UCLA, your concern is what? The transfer portal, losing everybody uh, you know, through the portal, NIL, fundraising. Deshaun Foster addresses both of those elements. If you had to give an initial grade uh, with a higher, you know, put in consideration the timing of everything, mm-hmm. what would you say with the Deshaun Foster one is? Uh, if we're putting the timing as part of this, I- I'm going to say it's a B. You know, it, I think it's it's good enough, and I'm not sure Martin Jarman had any other viable options right now. You, you, I don't think P.J. Fleck is the guy you want. There's a lot of sizzle there and no steak. And I think, you know, that report, you know, I know Dennis well. I know P.J. Fleck's agent well. I know what's going on with that coming out the way that it's coming out. I don't, uh, you know, by the way, P.J. Fleck's agent happens to be the brother of Kevin Harlan, the broadcaster who we heard on the Westwood One call earlier, but I, I'm not buying it. PJ Fleck, P- he seems like the guy that's always in every candidate as a candidate for every job, right? Like he's, I feel like any yeah. job comes available. It's like, oh, PJ Fleck, he's in the finalists, and his his brother Brian Harlan does a nice job. Kevin Harlan's brother does a nice job repping PJ Fleck, but I'm not convinced that PJ was a viable candidate for UCLA. But in the same breath, like there was an idiot reporter out of Arizona who was floating the idea that Jed Fish was interviewing for the UCLA job. And, you know, Jed Fish's agent basically came back and went like, this is uh, not a uh, competent reporter who's throwing this out there. I just think there's a lot of people who like to throw things out and and very few people who know what's going on and even fewer, I think, that are responsible enough to to kind of vet that and it's a really easy call to make to reach back out to UCLA to verify all this I I can tell you I have been in touch with Chip Kelly I have been in touch with Martin Jarman the athletic director at UCLA and the impression I have is that those two guys were not talking to each other and it was an untenable situation and was probably going to end with Chip Kelly and UCLA not having a great season Will Deshaun Foster do any better? Not in the Big Ten. I still think it's like a five-win season for UCLA. Number four. Well, spring training is coming up soon. In 26, umpires were assigned full-time spring training schedules last year. 21 of them were assigned to the in-season call-up list this year. One of them, John, is going to be 47-year-old Jen Powell. Powell is on the verge of being the first female umpire in the major leagues ever now that she is on the call-up list. Uh, she has been a minor league up since 2016. She's worked her way up all the way up to AAA, where she was behind the plate for the AAA championship game this past season. Now, Major League Baseball has 76 full-time staff umpires, and they use fill-ins for crews for openings created by injuries or vacations. And Paywall is going to set to be uh, work her first Major League exhibition game on February 24th between the Astros and the Nationals. Uh, she was also promoted to a minor league crew chief is on the verge of a regular season big league debut. Uh, she'll be the first female to be in a regular season big league game as an umpire. So uh, we'll look on that when that comes up, uh, coming up probably you know, in the spring when someone has a uh, vacation or an injury. I was really curious about this, and I went and looked up Powell and tried to look and see, like, how did she get her start? She started with softball, 
And she did about six seasons of softball before she went to a tryout camp for Major League Baseball umpires in August of 2015. She was invited to the academy. She was offered a job in the Gulf Coast League. Um, and she was one of nine women uh, who umpired minor league baseball games. Uh, in it. And now there are nine women who are expected to umpire minor league baseball games this season. So hopefully she gets, uh, you know, the MLB uh, call up and gets uh, she's got a spring training assignment. I think that's a good start for her. Number five. I don't know about you, but some people have the Waste Management Phoenix Open on their bucket list of things to go to because of the craziness uh, that they have at the PGA Tour. Tournament wrapped up on this Sunday, but it was the wildest it's ever been. Zach Johnson, you know, the golfer, he said he may be done playing in Phoenix uh, as he was asked if he's going to be back at TPC Scottsdale <laughs> next year. Johnson said, you're hitting me at a very emotional point right now. So if I were to say I'm coming back, I'd probably say no, but at the same time, I have no idea this is coming off the – there's videos of Johnson, you know, confronting the crowd as they were making comments to him about how they need to just back off. There was numerous videos circulating online, people just urinating in public, fans passed out on the ground. Uh, a woman was badly injured after falling from the grandstands at the 16th hole, which is notorious as, like, the craziest hole at all. Um, and at one point on Saturday, the atmosphere got so crazy that the tournament officials closed the entrances, suspended alcohol sales, at TPC Scottsdale, Nick Taylor did end up winning the tournament, winning a cool $1.58 million. You go to a rodeo, you got to expect you're going to, you know, have to watch where you step, okay? So you go to the Waste Management Open, you know what you're signing up for. You know, we've all seen the videos, and it is it is a nightmare, and it is a exercise in overcrowding and lack of facilities and, and and alcohol. I mean it's it you know for people who have been to this event, I've you know, I know some people who have been to the event, I've talked with them about it. They enjoy it. It's festive. I also think that there's a lot of kind of the halo effect of the nonsense that isn't all that palatable. You know, I've seen reports on social media about people just abandoning their rental cars at the airport, drive it up to the airport curb and leave it, you know, and it's causing a backlog at the airport. Uh, you mentioned a couple of the things on the course. The golfer's complaining. You're going to play in this event. you got to know where you're playing. But isn't it one of those things where this tournament is such a one-off? Like, shouldn't they do something? I mean, do they really have to make it this crazy? Like, can't they halt it back just a little bit? They should, because I think what they're going to run into is I think they're going to run into golfers going, I don't want to play it. And then suddenly it doesn't have the appeal that it has. And, you know, I think it could be, I think it has the potential like any, and I also think golf, this may not be a popular opinion with golfers, but I think golf needs to loosen up a little bit. There has to be a happy medium where you can be allowed to do more than whisper at a golf course, but you also don't need to be urinating. You know what I mean? There's, there's got to be a middle ground there, somewhere between the whispers and the people who are openly urinating on and the... Pa- yeah, passing the, out and falling off grandstands. Yeah, there's got to like, be a medium. There's a happy medium in there somewhere that works, you know, that makes it a fun event to attend. And most of us call this a normal sporting event, like where we uh, use the restroom and we don't fall out of the grandstand. And we just have a nice time and it's fun. And yet, yeah, But I also i have been to lots of golf events. I've covered U.S. Opens. I've covered a Masters. I've covered a PGA championship. It is a little obnoxious when you go and you go to cover the golf events and they're like, no talking, quiet, please. Everybody stand back. 
and you're like, this is a sporting event? Like, this isn't quite the same. And I always felt like the Pro-Ams had it figured out. Like Pebble Beach, the, the old Bing Crosby, the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. I covered that event for years. And I used to go to it and cover it as a media member, but you'd see kind of the, the mixture and blend of a Kevin Costner or Bill Murray playing alongside, you know, a Tiger Woods. And you would get sort of this balance of, every you know, the pros are here to play, the amateurs are here to entertain, the crowd is here to have a good time, it's okay to talk, you know, be respectful of the golfers who are trying to make money out here, but it's okay to have a conversation on the course. Like, there has to be a happy medium somewhere in there that ends up being better than, you know, this that we have right now. Because this isn't working. And the waste management, it's a matter of time. The, the only other thing is, like, if they don't pay attention to this, they're going to end up with a situation where somebody gets seriously hurt or assaulted. You talk about the woman who fell out of the grandstand. I don't know if she got hurt. But it's it, it takes a potential liability sometimes to get the attention of the people who are organizing the event. Maybe that maybe this is it. Maybe they got to wait till somebody gets seriously hurt and threatens to sue the event, and then they got to cut back on the alcohol sales or whatnot. But I think it could be. I still think it could be a like a raving good time, and everything that isn't golf. You know, I don't mind like occasionally somebody running onto the course and doing a snow angel and a sand trap or whatever happens at the waste management open. But it can't just be like openly. It can't look like a frat party the whole time. But as long as the winner gets $1.58 million, there's going to be golfers that want to play in it, right? There'll be golfers that want to play, but maybe some of the guys that know that they're going to skip an event here or there are going to go, hey, this one's not for me. And if you lose enough of those golfers, then sponsors stop showing up. And then you lose the sponsors, and it's just not enough to have a bunch of drunk people vomiting in the bushes. All right, coming up, Reagan Beers. She is having a fantastic season at Oregon State. She is the Pac-12 Women's Player of the Week, second time she has accomplished that. We're going to talk about her life, her family, and her season next. Oregon State Women's Basketball Program is on another run. I don't think it surprises anyone. We had Scott Ruick, the coach, on the show a couple weeks ago. He said he thought this team was playing in a way that reminded him of his Final Four team. Uh, with us now, one of the stars on the team, Reagan Beers, is with us. Uh, Reagan, you're having a great season. How's that feel? Thank you for having me, first of all. But, yes, it's been a great start to our year. Our season's going great. Obviously, it's more fun when you win. Um, and so the fact that we remind Coach Scott of that Final Four team is such an honor because that Final Four team was absolutely amazing. So we're excited to continue to make our run. He was, you know, and he, it was interesting because, we kind of had him come on right about the point where you guys started to play well, like you showed some flashes of it, and he said, you know, this feels like the foundation and the run-up, and he talked about the competition, uh, uh, you know, between players and how you guys challenge each other to be better. Can you speak to that a little bit? What are practices like for you guys? Yes, for sure. Um I feel just compared to last year, this year there's just more accountability within the team. Obviously, the coaches held us accountable last year, but this year um, when someone misses an assignment, when someone um, gets backdoored, when someone gets scored on, something like that happens, someone within the team is going to that person and saying, hey, don't let that happen again, or hey, you're better than that, let's go. Like That thing is coming, that accountability is coming from within the team, and I just feel like probably Coach Scott probably talked about this, but 
when that comes from within the team, that just makes your team so much stronger that your players are holding each other accountable. And so um, best example is yesterday when we were playing Colorado. Um, I think Talia got backdoored or something, and then um, we went down, and then she, I think, scored, and then on the way back there was a dead ball. And I was like, hey, great shot, but don't let that backdoor happen again. Um, <laughs> so, like, um, obviously encouraging the things that we do well within each other, but then obviously holding each other accountable. Hey, don't let that happen. And then, um, obviously to me, a gardener, honestly, in my opinion, does the best holding me accountable. Um, she's like, you really going to let that girl punk you like that? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. Um, and so just within the team, having that there is just so powerful and it, it's a great sign of a great winning team. So it's just been a drastic change from last year. And it's, honestly probably what's been helping us win um these close games against these really good teams yeah last year i saw you guys uh i went i i was there in maui when you played lsu and it wasn't a pretty game right i mean that it was a probably an eye-opening experience for you guys and i didn't like the way that some of the lsu players uh treated you guys i didn't you know i, I was a little uncomfortable i came back you know from that trip and talked about it on radio and i thought you know, LSU really hard to root for after seeing that performance. But what did you get out of that as a freshman who's on that stage and you're against a team that is going to play in the national championship game? What did you get out of that experience? Oh, man. As you said, LSU, uh, they, they were a great team. It was honestly interesting to see um, us play that kind of team um, last year, so early in the season. And then obviously Yellen and I got um, in that game, and then I had to play the entire second half with four fouls. And so – um, we didn't have another post at that time because Tamia was out. And so that was just a very interesting, um, weird game. But LSU is a great team. Obviously, and they did a great job with Angel Reese and all the great guards on there. And so um, it's just it's very different. But I learned a lot from that game. But um, I think the biggest one is that um, that we're good enough to be here. And then personally, I'm good enough to be here. And so um, there was obviously – just a little bit of doubt, obviously coming into the Pac-12, one of the best conferences, in my opinion, the best conference um, in college women's basketball. It's just there's so much competition every single game. And then coming into that, LSU was a great eye-opener. Like, we're going to be playing these teams every single weekend when we get to the Pac-12 because Maui last year was before the Pac-12. And so it just gave us a good eye-opening experience about what to expect when the Pac-12 hits. And sure enough, next year, um, a lot of close games in the Pac-12 that we just couldn't finish and then some close games that we could finish. And so LSU was just a great overall experience for our team giving us a taste of what was to come and then kind of giving some people the confidence to just hey we belong here um even though we lost by 40 like there were some good things <laughs> good things in that game that um could obviously build build upon and be improved upon um but just shows that we can be there and we can compete and obviously this year we have all the confidence in the world after beating some really good teams and so that's just kind of carrying over uh, as we head into this this weekend yeah reagan bears is with us uh, you look really comfortable on the court two-time Player of the Week, the first Oregon State two-time Player of the Week since Marie Gulich did it. Um, by the way, uh, Reagan uh, passed Marie on Sunday in career double-doubles. 28 double-doubles for you now and counting. Um, oh, wow. Reagan, you didn't know that, huh? Ray no, no, and you just said two-time Pac-12. I've only won it once. You were, didn't you win it? Didn't, weren't you Player of the Week twice? I think I've only won it once this year. Okay. Well, so I, far, anyway. Well, maybe, maybe. I'm, uh, maybe I am uh, ahead of my time here, so... Uh, give me an idea. You're you're McDonald's All American in high school. How often do you run into players on opposing teams that you saw in the club circuit, or you played, uh, you know, even as part of some of these showcase games as a high school star? 
Yeah, we run into them all the time. Um, I mean, the Pac-12 was filled with girls that were at the McDonald at that McDonald American game. Obviously, one of them, my teammates, me and Gardner, and then um, UCLA has a lot of them, and then Oregon has a few. And so, um, just we constantly run into those girls that were like, "Oh, hey, you were on our team <laughs> in, at the McDonald American game," and a lot of them we did get to know a little bit. And so, um, so it's fun to just see and play against those girls and how much they have improved since that game. I mean, um, Grace Van Sloot, for example, at Oregon has done so much and has been doing so well since that McDonald American game has just improved and so it's fun to see those girls that we played against those um, in that game and then how they're doing in college and how their game um, translates from high school to college is very interesting to see and so it's just been fun um, playing against those girls and kind of knowing a few of them and then obviously Lauren from UCLA who I've known for, for a while now I'm glad she's back and so um, it's just it's fun playing against those girls that you've known and getting to see how they have grown and how they have made you better. And it, it's just fun to see that and play against that each weekend. Now, Reagan, I'm going to tell you here, you, you won Pac-12 Player of the Week this week. That's your second. You didn't know that. This? Oh. Today. This today. You are, the, oh. you are the player of the week in the Pac-12. Oh. I did not know that. Well, thank you for telling me. Well, yeah, 17 points that. against Utah. I went back and looked while you were talking just to make sure. But you won it, you won it the week of January 15th. You won it again today. Just out. Oh. But Pac-12 just announced that. Oh, well, I've been in class, so I, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's cool. Well, I love it. So, uh, you know, and obviously you don't do it for the Player of the Week awards, but that stuff comes when, when you're having success. And as long as they're handing that out, Reagan, you should be uh, – take it. You know, take it if they're hand- – but um, – you know, you guys feel like you're in rhythm right now. Is it? Am I reading that right? That this team is playing better basketball now than maybe earlier in the season. You, are, are, do you feel like you're in a groove? I would say so. I feel like we are in a groove, and I feel like that just came most recently with our individual confidence. I mean, um, I knew that we could shoot the ball from the moment we stepped into that gym back in, I don't even know, November, however early we started, and we had guards knocking down those threes. I'm like, oh, we we can shoot the ball. Like, we're legit. Um, And then, obviously, we have post-presence, and so having that combination is is hard to guard for other teams. And so early in the season, maybe that didn't show as much, um, but now that our guards are just, being more consistent um, in the shooting and then constantly having more post presence. It's just, it's, it's hard to guard. And any team is, uh, we, we scout against that obviously each weekend, every guards, every team has good guards who can shoot and usually a good post player. And so scouting against that isn't easy. So I can imagine scouting us isn't easy either. So vice versa, but it's great to see everybody individually gaining that confidence. And then that just builds the team confidence and that just fuels the fire and um, fuels our energy and our want to win because we know we can. So it's been fun to see everybody just kind of rise up, especially Lily recently knocking down those threes. And obviously Talia and Tamia just becoming consistent has just been super helpful and super impactful on our team. We're talking to Reagan Beers, two-time Pac-12 Player of the Week this season. You have three siblings, Rocky and Rowdy, brothers, who are football <laughs> players at, at Florida International. I want to talk about them. And Riley, uh, who is following in your footsteps, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what, what is that family dynamic like? And let's start here, though. Why the R names? What's with uh, your parents? Yes, so it's funny because actually all of our initials are RLB. All of our middle names are one-syllable L words, too. And so it's funny when people find that out. Um, But Rocky is named after my i want to say my mother's um i want to say my mother's uncle mm-hmm. someone someone on my mom's side and then reagan i'm named after my grandpa's name is raymond um and so i'm named after him 
And then they got to Rowdy, and they're like, well, we kind of have Rocky and Reagan. We should probably keep the R's going because that would be a little weird if we have Rocky and Reagan and then, like, a Gerald or something. <laughs> So they're like, we got to keep the hearts going. And so they kind of talked about names for a while. And um, they were watching the Olympics when they were pregnant oh, with like, Rowdy Gaines. Rowdy Gaines, the swimmer. Yeah. And so he came to TV and they were talking about different names. And then Rowdy Gaines comes on. And my mom goes, how about Rowdy? And my dad goes, sure, let's go with that. And there we go. There's Rowdy. <laughs> what? And then my sister is named after one of my mom's, I believe, friends in college. Um, so Rowdy's the only one where it was kind of like, well, we got to keep the hearts going. So what do we get to I love it. What so? What's that dynamic like? And you know, uh, and I think your coach Scott Ruick told me years ago when he's scouting players, he looks for an older brother, and he says older brother mm-hmm. means that she can rebound. Do you give credit? <laughs> do you give credit to your siblings for your rebounding? Oh, a hundred percent. All of that credit goes to them and my dad. I mean, just once they sprouted past me and I started playing in some more, it was just. It was impossible. I was like, I would box him out or I would try to hit him and they just wouldn't move. And I'm like, this is just terrible. Um, so they, they get all the credit for that. And then, of course, Riley's getting there, getting all feisty. She might be small, but she's mighty. And so she gets in there and scraps it out like any little guard does. And so having that dynamic within our family was just so much fun. The competition level was just through the roof and everything, not just not just basketball and cul-de-sac. But when we would go play midnight soccer with a glow-in-the-dark soccer ball, I mean, flag football, whatever you want to do, um, the competition level was just through the roof. And honestly, that's what made me better um, in a sense for basketball. And then I, I hope it would – I hope it helped my brothers um, get to where they are a little bit. But I love my family so much. I love growing up in that environment, that competition environment. And my parents just fueled that. Of course, they would draw lines, like when fights would start. But, you know, (laughs) they would draw lines. But overall, it was just so fun to grow up in that environment. And it kind of made me as competitive as I am today to be able to play at this level. So, Your brothers, correct me if I'm wrong, they're like 6'5 and 6'4. And then... And mm-hmm. and so I mean that, you're obviously when those we were playing those games you're right you got to compete and you're you're trying to post up uh, you know physical players in the driveway on your mm-hmm. on your Instagram you had hashtag um, something mm-hmm. about the cul-de-sac uh, long way from the cul-de-sac long way yeah. from the cul-de-sac what is that a reference to my older brother when I was first getting Instagram um, which was like super late in high school it was like maybe a couple months before the McDonald's American game like I didn't have social media in high school and so as i was making i was was creating it i was like rocky what should i do um i go to rocky for just about everything and so i'm like Rocky, what do i do (laughs) he's like i think it'll be awesome to just say hashtag long from the cul-de-sac because the cul-de-sac where we live is where we would just do everything together we would um play games and obviously basketball was there and um, we just do. We grew up in that cul-de-sac, and so he was like, "If you're going to Oregon, you could just say it's a long way from the cul-de-sac." Um, have that little tag in your bio. I was like, "Oh, I love that because it kind of gives a tribute to everything in that cul-de-sac that went down. That kind of helped me get to where I am now um, at at Oregon State." And so that was that was Rocky's idea. So I don't get credit for that, but it's in my bio, and that's from him. So give me an idea. There's there's great culture at Oregon State. Obviously, your head coach has been there. You have people like Aaliyah Goodman who have been around and been through the program. Um, what is what does that add, and how does you know when you come into the program as a freshman, the culture and the expectations? To, you know what help us understand from the outside what that feels like. 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like our saying, hashtag we are family, just kind of sums it up. And I feel like when you watch our team, um, even if you're new to watching our team or have seen the team for 10 years, that hashtag we are family hasn't changed, um, regardless of whether we're winning or losing. Um, back when Aaliyah was here, when they were winning, and Devin was here, um, back to last year when we weren't winning as much, that culture and that family environment that Scott has created um, doesn't change. And he does that by creating, um, by recruiting great players yes but also really good people um within the team and then also on his coaching staff obviously Jonas and Jonas Chatterton and coach Eli had been here been here for a while and then we have Devin coach Devin and then Aaliyah who have obviously been in the program and so just building on that family environment that they have lived it and now they're coaching into it and so they know exactly what it takes to be in our position and so that family environment just doesn't change and I feel like when people watch us they can see that sometimes, uh, most of the time, all the time, why we're so successful in that. Because we love playing for each other. We love going to war with one another every single game. Um, We love having that mindset, reminding each other um, to have that mindset every game. So, You know, you have, you know, obviously a conference tournament coming in Vegas, but there's, uh, you know, a half dozen games here left in the regular season. What do you guys need to shore up between now and then? Hmm. There's always something to improve on, um, no matter how good we play. Um, there's always something to improve on. Co- Coach always emphasizes that. Obviously, we're in a groove. We're kind of on a um, – but there's always something that we can improve. And so he's like, no matter how good of a game we think we had, we did have a good game, but there's always something that we can improve upon. And so just bottom line, keeping people in front of us, staying in the right position is going to be super important, especially two really good teams coming up this weekend in USC and UCLA um, at Gill. Those are going to be some tough teams. And um, so being in the right position defensively and just being in the way is just going to be super important, um, especially going up against these teams. And then offensively executing, executing consistently um, is obviously going to be super important again. And so doing that both offensively and defensively needs to be um, harped on and probably will be harped on during practice this week, Um, just being consistent in everything we do this weekend, weathering the storms, weathering the runs that – these teams are going to make because they are good teams, and that's going to happen. So weathering those runs um, and just playing through it every single every single minute um, of those 80 minutes that we're going to play this weekend is going to be beyond important um, this weekend. Number 11, Oregon State. You've got uh, number 9, UCLA, on Friday, and number 10, USC, on Sunday. Big, big games. Uh, Reagan, I really appreciate you joining us, um, and – uh, excited to hear your react, your genuine reaction, knowing that you're player of the week again. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us, and we'll get yeah. you back on prior to the uh, to the tournament. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. Go Beavs. There she is, Reagan Beers. She is at the center of Oregon State's success this season. They jumped in the rankings today. Uh, top 25 came out, up six spots. Biggest movement by any team in the poll. Oregon State now sitting at 11. Keep in mind, the West Regional will be held at Moda Center in Portland. I think it will be vital that Oregon State uh, gets in there and represents. But, uh, you know, keep in mind, there is a there is a pathway for Oregon State in the Regional, given that it's it, it amounts to a home series and a home tournament for the Beavers. Uh, leave it here. You got the BFT. I get the best questions in the Monday mailbag, and I've wrestled for a while as to why it is that um, I enjoy the mailbag so much. And part of it is that I think we get smarter, or at least we get wiser in theory, 
when people question things and people ask questions or are curious about things, right? When you go back and you look at stoic thinking or you look at philosophers, I mean, they were always questioning questions upon questions upon questions. And so I love the mailbag. Uh, it publishes every Monday. If you want to check it out, johnconzano.com. I uh, solicit questions on Twitter, at BFT on Instagram, at johnconzano. I also use uh, Facebook, the Bald Face Truth Facebook page, and LinkedIn sometimes. And, of course, the subscribers are always free to ask questions. So it's, it's just a fun exercise to see what kinds of things are asked and in what way. And I, I'm always interested in that. But I got a great question today in the mailbag. In the wake of the Super Bowl, it was a doozy from a reader who asked, as a sports fan, how do you process a loss by your team? And, you know, granted, you know the 49ers are my team, and I watched the game as a fan on Sunday, and and I watched as control of the outcome fell into the hands of Patrick Mahomes. I uh, messaged Dan Lanning, who was at the football game with his wife. He's a big Chiefs fan, wore his uh, Derek, uh, Derek uh, Brooks jersey to the game. Um, I asked him, you know, kind of... Uh, what that what he thought of the end of it and he said pat was pat and that's as succinct as you can put it patrick mahomes was patrick mahomes late in the fourth quarter and overtime and as the game was unfolding i was processing the whole time because normally in that setting i'm thinking about you know situationally what i would write as a columnist what i would talk about as a radio show host i'm not really processing it as a fan and i've been to nine Super Bowls, a whole bunch of Final Fours, you know, Kentucky Derbies, World Series, you know, BCS title games, college football playoff title games. I've been to a lot of big championship moments, and it's always interesting to me to kind of watch how the stakes and the glare of the stage, um, you know, how they uh, how they put pressure on people. And I thought the game in general, both from the Chiefs' standpoint and the 49ers' standpoint, had a bunch of that going on in the background. I mean, you're watching Brock Purdy try to erase the criticisms of him as a game manager. You're watching, um, you know, players on the Chiefs side make mistakes. Christian McCaffrey fumbles. I mean, I can't help but think what the stage is doing to those moments. A missed extra point in a rookie kicker, Jake Moody. I mean, it's just, there are just some weird things that happen on the on in big stage games, and, and we all know it. You know, we saw Chris Webber once upon a time uh, with the Fab Five call a timeout that he didn't have. Like, it's... Those things happen. But I'm not normally in that seat as a sports fan. And so it was interesting for me to kind of be where you have been multiple times. And I don't know if your your team is the Ducks or the Beavers or Washington or Washington State or the Blazers or someone else. You've, you know, you've all seen those moments, and you've all been in those moments as a fan where some disappointment sets in. Now, I am well aware, maybe because of the context of my job, uh, you know, what those locker rooms are like after those bad losses. And... They're quiet, and they're generally, um, you know, players asking themselves what more they could have done. I think we heard some of that from the 49ers in the wake of the loss. Like, we all could have done more. Nick Bosa said that. I could have done more. We all could have done more. But I think everybody starts to nitpick and try to pick apart what more they each collect individually could have done and then collectively what they could have done. And I think as a fan, you're in a little bit of a helpless position because you're just like, you know, there's nothing more you could have done. You're just watching your team. It didn't matter where you were sitting during the game. It didn't matter what you were eating during the game. Your preparation for the game did not matter as much as your team executing when it came time to execute or knowing the rules for 
over time in an NFL uh, Super Bowl. You know, it, it wasn't incumbent upon you to know that. The head coach of the, of the team needed to know that. But in the end, what I am left thinking about is how fleeting those moments are. And I can remember several years ago when the Seahawks were playing the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl. It was the New York Super Bowl that was had it, held at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. And I remember being in Manhattan, you know, a day or two before the Super Bowl, and I was going to have lunch with Sally Jenkins, who was the columnist at the Washington Post, and she picked the spot, and I was standing in the lobby, and, you know, I got there early, and lo and behold, Marv Levy, the coach of the Buffalo Bills, is standing there. You know, three-time Super Bowl participant, lost them all. Marv Levy standing there. He's in New York, and he's it's Super Bowl week, and Marv Levy is putting his name in to get a to reserve a table just like anybody else. And I can't, I could not help but think in that moment that had Marv Levy had just won one Super Bowl, the guy walked in would have walked in and wouldn't have had to wait for a table. Everybody would have been like, "That's Marv Levy." Super Bowl champion who brought a Super Bowl world title to the Buffalo Bills in New York City. And he would have got a table, no problem. I mean, so we often, I think, in our culture, our sports culture in particular, we like to pick winners and losers. We like to say that, uh, you know, one person, one team elevated above all others. But I think as I look at events like that, and maybe this is me as a sports columnist radio show host now, you know, we all think about, the horse that wins the Kentucky Derby. We don't think about who was second in the great race that they ran. We don't think about the runner-up in the Super Bowl. We don't think about the runner-up in the college football playoff championship game. But I think it is worth pointing out, like, the Washington Huskies had a hell of a football season. Michael Penix Jr. was not only the runner-up for the Heisman Trophy, he was the runner-up for the national championship. Think about that being second in both of those things. Um, you, you look at the 49ers season and you say, gosh, it fell short of what it could be because at different points they were playing better football than anybody. But it is such an important lesson about maximizing your opportunity and rising to meet the moment. And certainly the Kansas City Chiefs, in three consecutive playoff games in which they were an underdog, one and one and one, and walk off with the hardware again. Part of it is Patrick Mahomes. They have a player who's a difference maker. Part of it is Andy Reid. they got a coach who has been there so many times, he is spending time talking with his team about overtime rules and what they might be. They were prepared, and they were relaxed. Um, you know, were they perfect? No, they had bad moments, including Travis Kelsey on the sideline. But in the end, I'm left thinking about the runner-up team and the fan base of those teams and thinking, gosh, if you're a Huskies fan, would you have traded that run to the national championship game in Houston? Would you have traded it knowing that in the end that you were going to get your brain beat in by Michigan? No. I think Husky fans would have taken the Pac-12 championship and taken the thrills week to week. And I think 49er fans are going to have to be satisfied knowing that we now get to sit back and watch the 49ers and figure out what kind of fine-tuning they can do, what positions they can get better at, can they get healthier? Do they need another offensive lineman or two? I mean, it, it's the stuff of Timmy Lopez and the Bad News Bears, isn't it? You remember Lopez at the end of the Bad News Bears? It was one of my favorite movies from the 1970s. I was a kid. Walter Matthau, Buttermaker's the coach. Timmy Lopez doesn't say a damn thing all season long. 
And what does he say at the end of the year when they get beat? the bad news bears you know timmy lupus he's selling hope at the end of his season and you know i think as sports fans you know sports teams i know this like when they're trying to market to you they only have two things they can sell you they can sell proof of performance and the kansas city chiefs can do that or they can sell hope and the 49ers need to be doing that today kyle shanahan needs to be talking about you know getting back to the super bowl Brock Purdy needs to be talking about the offseason adjustments that he can make to be a better quarterback on third down in the Super Bowl. And the 49ers uh, need to look around and ask themselves, like, in what ways as an organization they can just get a little bit better. First and goal. Mahomes flings it. It's there! Hartman! Jackpot! Kansas City! It's like Timmy Lupus said, just wait till next year. The bald-faced truth is not here for a long time. Just a good time.